What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's edition of Podmosh. Today we have Rick Calverly, um, and I'll tell a little bit more about him in a sec. But first, real estate. If you need a house, if you want to buy or sell a house right now, where I work for a brokerage called Your Team Realty. Leslie's awesome. So if you want um, to, if you ever, I guess if you have any questions about any of this, if you want to use me as a real estate or I can hook you up some, with someone who can, uh, this is a great resource for you. Um, look me up on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Twitter my, my Twitter handle is Caleb Hodges PM. So Rick Calverly, he is the director of education at one of our local technical colleges here. Um, he's a he's a career machinist, um, and that is now uh, author and teacher of CNC, which is a technical program about nine months long. Really, really, really interesting. Um, without this career path, uh, manufacturing—I mean, it's it's the backbone of our economy. That's something I learned in this podcast. Uh, we talk a lot about it. Um, you can pretty much get into any field you want to through this program. Uh, if you want to go into aerospace, or if you want to, you know, go into uh, shoot any type of machinery if you whatever thing you want to work on the cnc program that he directs is your route so if you're looking for a really cool and different career change um, listen to this podcast um, hit him up or hit me up and i can hook you up with them so a lot of fun guys um i hope you enjoy this podcast as much as i did thanks all right and we are live check your mic real quick one two <laughs> get a little two. get a little closer for me we'll pull it there you go. How's that? There you go. I want to talk like Barry White. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rick Calverly. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate um, it. What do you do? Tell us who you are, what you do, so on and so forth. Yeah, so that's um, that's a complicated question. But um, How's that a complicated question? Because uh, I had a career change not so long ago. So, that's um, why I ask. Yeah, so... Um, I am the director of education for a for-profit technical college. Why are you saying that so slow? <laughs> to make sure I didn't mess it up. <laughs> you know, you're afraid you get sued or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm going the same speed as my brain all the time. So yeah, by trade, um, I guess that that's that's correct. I'm I'm a machinist, so I program computer-controlled machinery. Hmm. But then I got into education about seven and a half years ago. Why? Yeah, that's a that's another good question. Um, hey, that that cable right there is messed with the mic. Can you just move it off the the arm? See, so you, you can hear it every time it hits. I'll I'll cut it out later on. Go this way. Hear that dinging? That's that's this thing. <laughs> yeah, I should have untangled it before I had you out. Oh well, should be all right. How's that? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> now it's your belly. <laughs> you can lift it Can't up, man, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sucking it in. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, all right, what were we talking about? Uh, um, director, you're, uh, you yeah, switched. So yeah, so um, <clears throat> I've always I've always taught, it seems like, in one way or another. A uh, f- bunch of different stuff. I can go through my whole story, but... Um, for a long time, I've, I've wanted to do that. I wanted to teach. And, um, so I'm a, I'm a third generation machinist. Both my grandfathers were machinists. My dad was a machinist. And I always had this kind of sense that I wanted to do something, um, I don't know, maybe more permanent or something that mm-hmm. really made some, some difference somewhere down the line. And so I got a phone call about eight years ago. It's interesting because 
it's just, I was at a really good job. I had a really good job. I was making parts for the space station and F-35s and all aerospace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I worked, that's another sidebar story, but, um, dude, I'm all about sidebars. So there was two companies. So about you take 10 years ago, there was about NASA decides we're not going to the moon anymore. We're not Mm -hmm. going to space anymore. Somebody else can do it. We'll privatize it. So they started this whole, I don't know if you want to call it competition to say, uh, we'll give a million dollars to anybody that can build a a prototype that we think might work. So a bunch of companies dove in and- Prototype for what? For a a new rocket, something that would go to the space station. Um, So kind of funny, right? NASA says we're not going in space anymore, but we have a space station with American astronauts sitting on it, which they probably got a little nervous about. But um, hmm. so, we're not, so all funding pretty much was gone, right? Because not funding was gone. They just said they don't. They they're gonna get it. They're gonna get into scientific research and and they're but they're gonna let they're gonna privatize the actual rocket launching and space travel. Um, okay. Because it was it was really it's, as you can imagine really expensive. Um, you know NASA didn't do anything cheaply. Everything was. Yeah. Tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. So they decided to privatize it. So they said, you know, someone who can give us an idea that they can pull this off, we'll give you a million dollars if you can build some sort of prototype. So companies jumped on it. They started building prototypes. Um, a bunch of companies made it to that. And then the next step was, well, if you can build something that is actually a working model, we'll give you like, you know, another $20 million to continue research on that. So there was a bunch of companies involved that. Hmm. One of those companies uh, that I was involved in is a company called Sierra Nevada. So Sierra Nevada is a company out of Reno, Nevada that that got into this race with SpaceX. It really came down to those two at the end. So SpaceX and this in Sierra Nevada. That's how SpaceX started. Really? To get into this race uh, to do space travel, Pri- privatize it. Did you meet Elon? <laughs> no, no, I didn't meet Elon. I actually worked for the for the guy, you know, that came in second place, which is you know kind of wow. How long ago was this? This is less than ten years ago, nine years ago, ten years ago. Golly, yeah. that's so. Crazy. I was building parts for for this rocket and other other parts. They have they have another they have another thing they're working on. It was a three D mapping system uh, with no visibility. So one of the big problems in the Middle East was uh, they were they were crashing helicopters because they get any sandstorms they couldn't see. So Sierra Nevada was working on a on a three D mapping system that didn't need actual visual connection. So it was creating a three D topographical map underneath. Hmm. So pilot pulled out his headset and he would see it the three D image hmm. of the ground. So I was building parts for that unit. Oh wow. At the time, it was real hush-hush, top-secret stuff. Um, <laughs> oh, it was a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we had a conference with them, and they they separated. They wouldn't let any of the people who were building separate parts meet each other. Was this uh, government contracts or defense contracts? It was defense R&D that they would sell to the government if it ever worked. Hmm. Um, so anyway, they got involved. They got involved in the space race, too. Um, Who's they? Sierra Nevada. Oh, yeah. With, okay. with all these other companies. But it, it came down to, to just, just a couple two. companies, okay. right? Uh, so Sierra Nevada ended up uh, getting beat to the finish line by, by SpaceX. Was uh, it just a time thing or was it was there a specific it was uh, part? Just Elon Musk is a crazy, stinking, mad scientist genius. Yeah. He's, huh. yeah. 
So I, he beat him to the punch line. I don't, I don't know exactly how, but he did. So anyway, I was working at a company who was making parts for that. I was making, I made a lot of parts for the F-35, but it was in prototype mm. uh, stages. Um, so I was working a really good job. Back to the story, I guess. Working a, <laughs> working a really good job um, doing that, which is something I really wanted to do. company had just tons of technology. They were just all about all this crazy technology I worked for. And we were doing a lot of really interesting things. So I get a phone call out of the blue one day from a recruiter out of New Jersey. And they said, Have you, do you ever want to teach? And I go, yeah, you know, I think so. I don't know. And um, so they, I said, what's the, you know, what are you looking at? And so they were a, a big company called Lincoln College out of New Jersey that wanted to start a CNC manufacturing program. What's CNC? CNC stands for Computer Numerically Controlled. So it's the way machinists run machines now. Everything, as you can imagine, it's just, mm -hmm. it's all computer controlled. Mm -hmm. So it's all computer controlled machining. So, um, so why the recruiter reach out to you? I don't, you know, I think it's, you know, LinkedIn, I think. Really? really? Yeah. I mean, it was just mm -hmm. a random, we need somebody in this area down here in DFW who um, has a background that we're looking for. I, for all I know, they reached out to 100 people. I don't know. Um, but you have a pretty long-standing history in because you've done machining your entire life, right? Yeah. And before that, you were you worked for the Navy or? No, I I, I did um I did a couple of years in the military right out of high school, but but my father owned a machine shop in California. Okay. So I knew I went out on a real short enlistment because I knew I was just I wanted to do that and then come back and run my dad's machine shop. That was the goal. And you did underwater welding as well. So yeah, so you know, fast forward um, for anybody who's ever worked for their family, um, that lasted about five years before uh, we both got tired of each other. And um, and I left there, and then uh, that's just another sidebar that um, you know, basically, I have no idea what the heck I'm going to do. Uh, and I'm up one night, and I see this advertisement for underwater welding. How would you like to be an underwater welder? I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. I have no idea what that entails. I'm sure it paid a lot. No. Really? Not really? No. Not, not, not what people think. No. Okay. Um, you get paid a lot because you work about 100 hours a week. So it's all over While time. you're living offshore on a boat. Um, and some of, the, some of the deep divers make a lot of money. But, but for the most part, you know, it, it, was, it was good money because you went out for a month at a time. Mm -hmm. You came back and got a month's paycheck where you worked 100 hours a week. Jeez. So, yeah, so I went to, um, so I sold all my machinist tools. I'm never doing this again. I went to school for a year. I went and dove for about a year and a half. Um, and in the middle of that, actually, towards the end of my schooling, I actually met my wife. And so when I left and went diving for a year and a half, just, you know, long, <laughs> long story short. Um, wasn't working? Well, I just, yeah, there was a lot of stuff in my life wasn't working at the time. Um, the main thing was I just really, um, I kind of knew she didn't know, but I kind of knew that she was going to be my wife at some point. And so, uh, so I came I think back today. That would be called a, uh, a stalker. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> pretty much what I was. <laughs> yeah. So you convinced her. Yeah. I tricked her. I mean, convinced her. Um, I'll cut that up. Yeah. I mean, not really. I'm not cutting anything. <laughs> yeah. So, so came back, came back, uh, home actually went back to work for my dad for a little while and then i did i went out on my own and you know this is back in my 20s and um uh, it got back into machining full-time and then i went back in with like both feet like mm. 
I'm doing this and and I'm going to be, you know, really good at it. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, I got this call from Lincoln college about, about teaching and, um, I was interested and I, I asked a lot of questions like, you know, what kind of program is it? What, what are you guys doing? What kind of you know things are you going to teach? And they're like, we have no idea. We've never done this before. We want you to run the whole thing and just launch the whole thing. And that mm. got me excited. That was wow. like, that's exciting. Well, there had to be something in your uh, application on LinkedIn or whatever it is, because you didn't apply for it, that reached out to you. There had to be something that maybe set you apart from a typical machinist, you know, because at this point you've what, 30 years in as a machinist, 20 years, 25, yeah, 25 probably. years. Yeah. Cause uh, I mean, from somebody who says they track it back, Lincoln college says, Hey, we want to start this program. We don't know how we have to find somebody who's really good at this, this, and this, and then they'll reach out to you. So you're, you're saying that you're not really, you don't know why they could have reached out to hundred. Most likely that's not the case. So what is it about you that you think they kind of, you know, this guy could really take us far. Yeah. So I, I have a, I have a pretty diverse background and I've done some, you know, I guess what people would consider kind of high end machining, which is on my resume. Um, and I think also besides that is, um, um, you know, my experience level, uh, I'm not sure what they saw that would have, would have put me in a teacher mode. Cause that's a big, not just teacher mode, like director creating entire program from nothing. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess so. <laughs> um, okay, from my perspective, it's a big deal. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's also, uh, I did, a, I did a lot of training and I have, and actually I probably don't have most of that on my resume, but one of the things, Long story is, is that machining has really changed a lot in the last 30 years. It used to be all manual machines, just like everything else, right? Um, everything has evolved to this computer technology. So I kind of went through that change. And while I was doing that, I'm like, I'm going to go to every school that I can go to. So I took, I had a lot of, I'm one of these guys that has like 200 college credits and no degree in anything mm -hmm. really. Um, so I, I went to a lot of, yeah, a lot yeah. of schools, a lot of cert certification programs, uh, some of them were like 18 weeks. Some of them were, you know, a few weeks. I did a bunch of semesters at college, just taking some some classes. I had a lot of stuff on my, my resume, I guess. It, I don't know, maybe caught their attention. Hmm. Um, it's just, not it's really not sure. typical. It's very atypical where you are, have created this program. And I mean, we'll get to that program later, but you've created an entire program at a college. Now the director of this college or the, pro, are you the director, director of education, director of education yeah. at this college. Yeah. Um, so you're not, you're not, you're no longer just starting the program. You've risen to the director of education. So it's cool to see. Um, I, well, the reason I'm asking this, um, it's cool to see how somebody who came from an atypical background, atypical, um, uh, you know, non-college, non, -college, non degree based system and now you're running the school almost yeah it's a big deal it's it's definitely not typical and in uh if i if i keep on with the story a little bit so it took them probably four months to hire me and and i came in and met with them had a had a really good interview then they had me actually come back and teach them a class so they just said we're not going to give you a topic you just come back and teach us something Hmm. It take, did you go there? Take 20 minutes. Yeah, I did it at school in front of all the leadership of the school. Um, and I and I think I did pretty well at that. I mean, looking back, we still kind of do those with, with people. But 
they're normally really bad. Like it's just so terrible. People so, don't know how to teach. So I'm guessing, so none of these people are machinists. So they're, no, they have no idea. Okay. And, and they don't care about that part. They know I can do that part. Yeah. Right. Like I, how I, can you convey this to somebody who doesn't know anything? Right. But can you teach it? Cause yeah. you can take the best, I mean, yeah, I love sports analogies. You go to, you know, some of the greatest players that have tried to coach are failures mm-hmm. because they can't uh, relay the information mm-hmm. and, and engage people and make them. So that's why I had me come in and back in and do that. And I, and I, I taught, I still remember what it was about. In fact, I, I think I saw the PowerPoint I used. It was like the history of machining. Um, so I came back and did that and it was really, it, I thought it went really well. And Why do you think that is though? Why do you think that some people like your analogy um, NBA players are terrible coaches, and this is—I've seen this multiple times. You could be—you could have a like a great doctor or a great paramedic or a great nurse. Um, oops, and getting them to teach something sometimes is—they're—they're they're horrific. So, in your opinion, why do you think that some people are like they could be amazing at their trade, but are terrible at telling other people how to do it? Well, I think relate. Well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of answers that uh, communication is like probably the worst thing humans are do, right? Like communicating with one another and getting your ideas across is one of the most difficult things mm. I think to do. So people don't communicate really well. The other thing is, I, I know in 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 our setting in the in the technical college, we have people people like me that are experts in the field that have a really hard time breaking down the basic basic like let's go down to the very bottom line and explain this step by step where it's understandable the other thing is just engaging people how do you engage them where they're interested right Mm -hmm. so so can you engage people are you somewhat entertaining i used to have worked the guy who called it edutainment Mm. so you have to be entertaining while you're doing the education so there's there is kind of a i think a trick Mm -hmm. to it or, or philosophy behind it where um i i think you use a sports analogy i i think a lot of those guys are just so they're physically gifted and, and, and maybe like even, even in my field, you know, you're really gifted at, at machining, um, but you don't really know the basics well enough or you don't really have a good way to convey those mm-hmm. to people. So I, I think it's more difficult than people, people realize. It seems like those skills were, were learned at one time, like the process from A to Z was learned, but we live in, you know, working with only Z. You know, we, we automatically know the results for a lot of what we do just because we've always done it that way. You know, starting an IV or giving a medicine, we just, we know it because we don't, we learned it at one point, knew the tracks to get there. It's almost, almost like our, uh, our neural pathways know that track and it remembers it very easily. But teaching how to get from A to Z is another factor. And that seems to be the issue. In a lot yeah, of we have, we have guys in our, we have, we have instructors that, uh, in our school, we, we teach an auto program too. And uh, we start talking about, well, how do you change an alternator, for example? Well, you, you take these two bolts out. And, well, hold on a second. How did I get the bolts out? Well, you just put the wrench on there. I'm like, go backwards. Break that down for me. How do I use a socket wrench? Have I used a socket wrench before? Mm. How do I pick the right the or, right size? Or why do you need the alternator out? Right. I mean, there's there's a whole, it's a whole list of things where you really come back to you take for granted, especially mm. if you do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, to, I don't know to answer your question, you know, why I'm good at, I don't know. Um, but I, but I am, think I'm able to communicate pretty well and, and keep people engaged. And for me, it's, it's my passion. It's what I'm passionate about. Right. So it's really, it's good to stand up in front of people and, 
and talk about those mm-hmm. things and be able to explain it to them and break it down for them. And you see their eyes light up like, oh, I never thought the of that before. Bulb. You know, yeah. yeah. Those light bulb moments. So so that was, that was really good. Hmm. That is really cool. You are, And that's why I was really excited about this podcast because you are a really good communicator. Um, and I've had teachers, like you've taught me a lot of things just growing up. Um, and, and a lot of things have stuck with me. Um, and it seems like the teachers that have your gift are the, or, and the ones who make it fun are the ones that make it practical. And I can apply those things no matter what topic it is, whether it's, you know, medicine or machining or uh, life, how to be a man, whatever it is, it, it seems like, um, you're, you're very good at getting people from A to Z and not just teaching Z. Yeah, well, I, I think I'm a real linear thinker, which is good and bad. But I'm very linear in my thoughts. I go straight straight down a path. So mm. it's easy to explain those steps as I go. Um, what other type of thinkers are there? There's linear thinking and what else do you think there is? Oh, geez, I don't know. That's well, probably said, a good question for you. You said linear thinking. I was like, what else? What well, I think there's people that people that uh, they think with with emotions. They they base on experience. They I'm I'm a real facts guy. Just give mm-hmm. me the facts, and you, you know you know this. I'm I'm a math guy, right? And I love math because why? There's only one right answer. Oh, can we do a parlor trick? <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be I'll be bad if I, I don't have the. my cup. I didn't bring my calculator. Oh, let me pull up a calculator real quick. I'm doing this, man. I'm gonna pull up a calculator. Don't don't start off crazy here. Okay, we'll start. I'm with gonna two. set the guidelines. <laughs> what? Okay, what are the guidelines? So so Caleb calls this my parlor trick. <laughs> I used to tell people that I've memorized all the multiplication tables below a hundred. So you, so give me two two digit numbers to multiply together. Just two. I can't do like one hundred thirty six thousand. See what I'm talking about? Pi R Caleb? squared. You just no? gotta, you just got to go okay, to we'll Mach s- seven right off the bat. Uh yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Listen, it's just as it's just as uh, intriguing to do two digits of numbers. <laughs> Can I start with double digits and then go to like quadruple digits? Uh, I'm not sure. It's late in the day. I'm not sure my brain will work that fast. Okay. Well, all right, well, well how about we we get going a little bit more on the flow <laughs> of the conversation? Then I'll just kind of randomly ask Random you a question. Some we'll out. see what happens. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. So back to your original story. Your um, you're really great at numbers. You're a linear thinker. Um, it led you to being able to teach almost in a chronological way from point A to point B to all the way to Z and people seem to get it. And I, as a student of yours from just past experiences, I can agree with that. Um, so apparently you, you're, you're in the situation, you're with all the teachers of the entire uh, and educators of the entire school. You're teaching them um, machining lesson one. Right. Then what happened? So, so then, then it went silent. And this, at this point, uh, I'd already had a face-to-face interview. I had a phone interview with someone at, at a corporate office in New Jersey. Um, had an in-person interview. Two or three weeks later, we do another, the, the, we call them teach talks, where you come in and teach class. Um, and then it kind of goes silent. And, you know, you hate that point because I have a job that I'm working at, that I'm, I'm doing a good job at, but I also feel like I'm, almost have one foot out the door um, and I'm waiting for their call back. And so then they, they reached out to me. In fact, I was actually out of town on vacation when they called me and the sticker became my education level. So you don't mm-hmm. have a, you don't have a bachelor's degree and you know, whatever, whatever. They, it's funny cause they don't even care what it's in. They, they just care. want you to have one. Right. So, um, 
<laughs> I'm like, you know, I, I understand, but I don't know that a bachelor's degree is going to make you, you know, anyone better, more qualified than I am. So this kind of went back and forth a little bit. Um, and, I, and I did graduate at a tech school, just like their tech school, which I, I thought was ironic that they kind of mm. downplayed that. But I, I said, I did mm-hmm. graduate a college, a tech school, which is when I went to dive school. Um, and that was a year long program. It was pretty intense. And um, so that became kind of a sticking point. And I, and I guess I, later I found out that, that the dean at the time, which is a guy I absolutely love and respect, um, he didn't want to hire me. He didn't want to do with me. It was the camp's president who really liked me. So I finally, after a few months of this, I finally just called him and said, listen, I, I, have, to, I have to have a commitment here. It's either either want me or you don't want me and I'm, I'm done talking about it. So then he calls me back and says, yeah, I absolutely, I don't who? care. The camp's president. Okay. He says, I absolutely, I don't care what anyone else says. I'm hiring you. Hmm. You're going to be the guy. So, so how's your relationship now with the other guy, the one who didn't want to hire you? So he um, he actually moved on. He's not there now, but... Um, but he actually became my mentor, and he was, he is a, uh, this is a guy that, that was an auto mechanic who came to Lincoln to teach, and by the time he left, had a doctorate in education. Oh, my gosh. And, and he is, he was just, and it's, it's one of those weird things, right, where you look back and you go, so many things he said was true. Like, mm. so, there was so much truth. And I actually worked directly with him for six months setting up this program. I mean, he helped me build the curriculum. He taught me how to do it. And he, again, knows nothing about what we were going to teach, and it didn't matter to him. It was all about the process. Hmm. And so he taught me how to engage students and talk to students and how the program should be set up and exactly how we wanted it. And So how did you set up all that program? From You, you literally had nothing. And yeah. you, you wrote the book on it pretty much, right? Yeah. Literally. We could, we could talk about that. Um, but um, so – so they had some advisors in the beginning and an advisory board and they had some other advisors that were kind of giving some information about what we should do. When I got there, they were literally starting construction. Like they were tore some classrooms out and they were building this new lab. So I was involved in what, what tooling we should buy, what, um, what books should, we should have, what machines we should have, um, what hmm. classes, uh, classes were kind of set, but exactly how we were going to do that. And then I actually went in and built day by day. So this program is about nine and a half months long. I wrote a day by day outline of what we learned every single day in class. Jeez. And I spent about six months. And again, that was that dean that that stepped in and told me, just what you got to do. You got to be down to this level Mm. um, before it's ready. So it was a huge undertaking. I worked for six months before we ever had one student in the class. Um, and, and we worked really hard at that part. And, you know, a lot of other people were involved, a lot of other help. Um, yeah. And then we, then we launched in December of 2013 with our first, our first class. So that's kind of a cool story too. Let me say that story real quick. So we had one, one thing I, one thing that I was told from the beginning was, you know, don't get your expectations too high. You're going to have at least 15% of these people are going to drop out. So, I mean, they're just for whatever reason. They're not going to like you. They're not going to like the program. It's a new program. You're going to lose a bunch of them. Don't worry about it. So I kind of made it my mission. I'm like, there's no way. So uh, I had 17 students start my first class, and I taught them every single class all the way through the whole. There's mm. 10, 10 courses, about Jeez. nine and a half months. I taught them every single day, every single class. And I Nobody did. Nobody dropped? No. So when I got done, I had all 17 what? and I actually made a, I have a, a picture hanging in my office. Like, and it's called the 17. 
Uh, and it's those 17 guys. Your very first class. Yeah, it was the very huh. first class. And, and it, you know, and, and there was time. There was a couple times where, uh-huh. yeah, there was, there was one time. I, I don't even know if I should tell the story. But there was one time where I literally went to a guy's house one morning and picked him up and made him get in my car and come to class. Hmm. Uh, Cause he was going to fail my class. I'm like, you are not failing my class. I'm bringing you to school and you're going to, you're going to pass. Hmm. Um, so, so I worked really hard to yeah. keep in those 17. Well, it's kind of funny. Cause uh, when I, when I first went to EMT class day one, there was 25 or 26 or something like that. And by the beginning of the next week, there was 10. Right. And then we graduated with four. Yeah. There's four who graduated. Yeah, that's similar to dive school. Until I think we start with twenty five and we graduate seven. Yeah. Um, Why do you think that is? There's a lot of certificates that that uh, these 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 schools, these technical schools, and like they said, a lot of people drop out. Like a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, I know for me, uh, my teacher, he was cool, but it, it, you could tell that a lot of the teachers are just so burnt out. A lot of them, they just don't care anymore. So you as an educator, how do you kind of fix that? Class one worked. So you kept them engaged, all 17 students, 100% graduation. That's a huge deal. Yeah, that was a big deal. That was a big deal. So what'd you do? What was your strategy? And actually, so we had another class started. um, So we we, we run classes all the time. We don't don't have semesters. So like um, last month, I started a class of CNC students. And then just a few days ago, we started another class. So as, as we have enough people, we start classes. Oh, wow. So it doesn't run on semester. So it's, I actually went over 11 months before I dropped the first student. And it made me so mad. <sighs> and there, it made me mad because it was a guy who was in the field. He already had experience in machining. And he came here because he wanted to you know get a certificate, up his skills, all that kind of stuff. And he just flaked out on me mm-hmm. and, and didn't show up. So I, I almost made it my whole first year. That was, that was going to be a big mm-hmm. deal too. But I missed it by... Couple weeks. So is this is this uh, is I have that gra- guy's picture in my office too. <laughs> <laughs> so is this graduation percentage for you more of like a uh, uh, a stripe on your shoulder, Dude, or, no, or is it like you, I know you care about people, but yeah. I know what you just told me. People might misconstrue as a stripe on your shoulder, but that's not the case. No, it's not a stripe on my shoulder. It's it's. Um, it's impacting someone's life. Mm-hmm. And it really is. I mean, we have people, I can tell you lots of stories about, I mean, we have people that we've drugged to the finish line and they'll come back to me three or four years later and go, man, this is where I'm at now. You totally changed my life. I mm-hmm. mean, I know I wasn't the best student, but but because you got me through this, I'm here now. I, I have other guys who, who don't graduate, who, you know, all kinds of issues come up later on. You just... I, I see really every single one of them as an opportunity to really change someone's life. Me going to a tech school like I did, it, um, I was at a kind of a bad place in my life when I went to that. And um, I had lots of self-doubt, lots of you know issues. And um, going to that tech school, really, it was like the first win for me. Like it was a really big win. Mm-hmm. Um, like I can really do something. I have some confidence now and I can, you know, nothing can really stop me. So I know we can do that with students. Um, so every time I lose one, man, it's, it's kind of personal. Hmm. And, yeah. I, I know you're as teachers and, and you're taking this approach, which is super cool, which also uh, there's only a handful of teachers that I know who take this approach where they, they incorporate ev- their, their students entire lives into the grading process, into how much they invest in these, in these students' lives. Um, cause I know I've had, I've had, like, I had to take a break from my bachelor's degree program cause I just, 
I need to spend more time with my family and my kids. It was just a lot of full-time school, full-time work. Sometimes you just need a breather. Um, and I know like that wasn't even remotely close to things that other students have gone through where, you know, they're maybe they're going through the middle of a divorce during these certificates. Maybe they lost a family member. That's a huge deal. Maybe they're struggling with drugs and alcohol. And a lot of that I'm sure plays into you as an educator, as a teacher, like you're not just teaching them to the book. Like you have to incorporate like the macro side of their entire life. So how do you kind of work through that? So I have, uh, it's become kind of famous. I have what we call father son talks. Uh, <laughs> most of our population, about 90% of our population are male uh, going to a tech school. Um, so we have, we have a lot of guys and we have them all different ages from 18 to 50, um, all different backgrounds. We have 18% uh, veterans, mm -hmm. uh, population in our campus. So that's a big deal. I had a guy in my office today that's suffering from massive PTSD. And how do I relate to that guy and touch that guy, right? Um, I had a guy not too long ago that he actually dropped and came back and I sat him down and, he, and I said, what's the issue? I, you know, I've got a drug issue. Oh, what's the drug of choice? Heroin. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow. Like, I mean, the guy's in the campus every day and I don't even see it or, you know, mm -hmm. and, and these are, like you said, these are real life issues. These people have life outside of, of school, of course. And you know, um, they want to, they're doing this to better themselves so they can get past these issues. Every, I, in, this is a philosophy I have and I, and I believe it's hundred percent true. Every single student, when they show up that first day has a goal. And actually my, my first day of class for all new students is I want a goal sheet. I want a list of goals, and then I want you to listen to that to steps how you're going to get those goals. Every single person has a goal when they start. Mm -hmm. Can we keep them focused on that long enough to finish? Right? Are the goals life goals or like scholastic goals? I want life goals. I don't okay. care about scholastic goals. I, I don't care what you think your GPA should be. I don't even care if you say you want to be a graduate. That shouldn't be a goal. That's not a goal. That's a step in a goal. The mm. goal's got to be way bigger than that. So you got to have some sort of goal. You have to have a reason that you can touch into to, to, to dedicate. Because our, our schools go, we go five days a week, five hours a day. So it's like a job. I mm -hmm. mean, they have to come in every day. Um, so, so we really track it and we really work with them on their attendance and, and being engaged and being there to learn the skills. But, but they, have to, they have to have something bigger uh, than just getting a diploma. Because... Mm -hmm. In the line, that's really just a piece of paper with a nice fancy stamp on it. Um, they so they got to have something better. Why don't people do that more? Why don't educators do more of this? Why is it, why is it not a requirement for educators to have this mindset? So you have different types of schools, right? Um, some schools, uh, you know, and, and let, me, let me preface by just saying all schools have a different mission. Mm -hmm. they, all have, they all serve a different purpose. The students that come to my school don't want to go to school. Per se, yeah. they don't want to go to college. Yeah. Um, a lot of my 18 year olds that come in, they're right out of high school. Mom and dad says, you're, you're going to college, or you're going to a trade school. And they think, oh my gosh, four more years of college, you know, there's no way I'll go to a trade school. So they don't want to be in school uh, necessarily. So they all have different missions. Mm -hmm. um, community college or even a four year program, you, you know, you, you go through that, you know, they don't care if you're there or not there. They don't care if you're engaged or not engaged. They're there to teach you some specific skill. And if you participate in that or not, that's on you. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and they're, they're there to, to give the information and, 
and teach, I guess, right? So I guess teachers can get in that mode where I'm just here to, I'm here to teach and it's on them to engage. For us, that's a little bit different, but being a for-profit school, we're actually monitored uh, our attendance percentage, our graduation percentage, our placement percentages. I mean, we have to put up good numbers and we mm-hmm. have to track it. So, so we have to engage more. And the other thing is different is we don't hire professional educators. We hire guys out of the field. We hire professional welders, professional auto mechanics, professional HVAC technicians, and then we teach them how to teach. So what they're teaching mm. is a subject they're already passionate about. They've already invested and they've already been successful. So you're having uh, professionals come in and then you're teaching them how to teach instead of uh, educators teaching how to be professional. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, n- nine times out of 10, you know, I-, I wish I had a professional educator, um, you know, that d- 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 knew how to give the information. Right. And I mean, that's the way a lot of colleges do it. They, they, you know, you get a professional degree in teaching and then they give you the subject matter and you teach it. History, math, science, doesn't matter what it is. I'm an educator and I can give this information. We do it the exact opposite. We, we hire professional welders and mechanics, and then we teach them how to teach that in the classroom. How did y'all get to that conclusion? I don't know. Probably way before, way before my time. But for, yeah. for a tech college, it only makes sense, right? Yeah. You want, you want people that... Um, you know, it's one thing for reading it out of a book and applying it. And I heard something you said uh, previously about it's one thing to, you know, you read it out of the book, the four steps to start CPR or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But when you get in the field and somebody goes down, it's a whole different, you know, I mean, that that kind of goes out the window, right? Can mm-hmm. you perform it or not perform it? And it's the same thing with these guys. I mean, um, there is a there is a right way to teach it and there is a right way to learn it. And there is, you know, some standards that have to be taught. But at the same time, these guys are professionals in the field that know what obstacles are going to come against. What is the situation? You know, what are the different types of things you may have to work on? They're in the field. They know what's happening. So so they're already passionate about their field. Hmm. It's that common sense thing that seemingly the years in the field have already taught them. And listen, you... <laughs> uh, you don't come, you don't come and work for me f- for a job. If you come there for the job and the money and the, you're not going to be that happy. It, the people that come to us to teach are people who have been in the profession and they want to give back somehow. So they already have a different, I think, mindset than a lot of people do. So hmm. That's interesting. So you've equipped your students. You, yeah. Specifically, that first strategy um, in that first class with 100% retention rate and graduation rate, you have those goals laid out. And it seems like you're really pushing students to dream bigger than they've ever had to dream before. And that is a huge passion of mine. I, I, I always think that people don't dream big enough. And what, how did you come to that conclusion? Why do you want your students to dream bigger when... I know you care a lot, but these students are probably walking in just wanting to have a class to get a certificate to make their life better. So what led you as an educator to push past these boundaries? Well, I have an instructor that puts on the bottom of his email, uh, his signature block says, uh, if you don't know where you're going, you're bound to get there. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're just wandering aimlessly, uh, who knows where you're going to end up, right? So. I think, I think with my life and, and stuff, I, you know, I'm sure it's based on my experience somewhat, but I really know that um, everyone that, that's there um, can be really something 
special, right? Have you yeah. seen that with your students that have already graduated? Oh like, yeah, like I have guys. Them. Yeah, I have guys. I have one of my, in fact, he was one of the guys in the first class. Um, went to a shop, went to an aerospace shop, was doing some really good stuff. And then I got a phone call from another company up in Denton saying, I, I need somebody who's like, you know, the best, like just walk in and just do everything. And I'm like, I know this guy. And he's a vet, by the way, too. Hmm. I just got back from Afghanistan when he came to my, my school. And um, so I said, I know one guy. This guy's great. So I give him the guy's name. He goes up there. He takes over this guy's whole company and does some really cool things. And then he, then he decides that, you know what, this isn't even enough there. I want to do something else. He went to Texas A&M to get his engineering degree. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I know that's in every one of our students somewhere. Sometimes you just have to, you have to tap into it and you have to ask them the questions. I mean, they have the answers already. I, I don't, like, I don't, I don't, when I have them do a goal sheet, I don't get the goal sheet from them. I tell them to keep it and stuff it in a textbook. I said, when you're having a really bad day, just open it up and find it and remember what your goals were, right? So, uh, I think I think a lot of things in life, you know, like you already said, if it's goal oriented, if it's goal centered, if you have something, if you're looking beyond, you know, five feet in front of you, then the task that you're doing now is simple, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's and it's an investment. I tell students this is an investment. You you don't come here for your grade or your attendance. You shouldn't really care about that. What you're coming here for is the knowledge and the information, because yeah. you're going to run up against stuff and you you you're going to need to know it. So, so that I, I get them in a different mindset where they're actually coming to get the knowledge and get the information. People are so wanting the today reward. They don't want to put in, you know, 10 bucks into a mutual fund because they need that 10 bucks now so they can get that Starbucks. And, and we have every, it seems like we have this, these spheres of life. Like we have our work sphere, we have our social sphere, our friend sphere, our family sphere, and we separate them like massively, but with why, like your mentality and the mentality I live by as well as like, why don't we connect those more to further the goals? Like for instance, I'm uh, I got my real estate license. I mean, housing is, it's cool. Like I don't want to, I don't want to make this my career, but down the line, if I can sell a few houses on the side, it can further my current goals. It can further one day, say, say I get into commercial real estate and I'm, I can make, I can sell, um, a lot of, a lot of, ha- a lot of, uh, properties throughout the years. Um, I can use that to invest in my research think tank that I would love to have one day, you know, those are long-term goals, but I, I don't right now really care a whole lot for selling. I love it. Like it's cool. Cause I like helping people. But when I was five years old, I didn't want to that wasn't your dream no, on no, your wall and, no. your, and your whiteboard in your room? No, not at all. <laughs> I was like, okay, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a pilot. I want to do this. I want to do that. Um, real estate wasn't one. I liked doing it. It was It was really interesting to learn just the economic side of it. But sure. um, it's kind of one of those things I have in my back pocket. It's also protection for my family. You know, if, if you know, should have ever hit the fan, I could just buckle down, stop everything, and go sell houses while doing, you know, EMS on the side if I need as well. Cause I can work EMS three days a week, work my full time hours, and then go sell some houses, you know. So there's just a lot of these just kind of different levels of protection that I've had for my family and their investments towards my long term dreams. And we see that even with um, finance. A lot of people are are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt because we haven't been taught to protect and kind of savor and and live in our means. You know, well, we're an instant gratification society, yes. right? And that's what I'm saying. It's all connected. So I want to work this week so I can buy whatever on yeah. Friday. 
Um, there's no, there's no long-term, you know, no, no looking no, ahead. Yeah. Yeah, really. And I, and I think I, I try to do that a lot with students. I, that's the goal mentality. Yes. That's, um, you know, I talked to him about, you know, uh, I even talked to him about my situation. I said, I have a wife and five kids and we haven't always had it easy by any means, but my wife has been able to stay home and raise the kids and we homeschooled and all this stuff, uh, based on the fact that I was able to make a good wage and I didn't make a good wage because necessarily the best at every place I was at. I did it because I outworked everybody that I worked with and I, and I invested, I was going to school on the side and I was learning more things and I was challenging myself. So yeah, I mean, hmm. there's, there really is a, you know, I think it's kind of lost on us. I, I don't know. I don't like to say it because. Well, it I, seems like it's lost on us. Yeah. You know, I hear this, I, boy, we'll go up really off sideways, but, um, yellow, I hear, I hear this, um, I hear this term like, um, First off, skills gap. I hate that term. And the second one is these, you know, millennials are this. And I hate that term. Mm. I, I'll shut that down in a second because I don't believe that. I believe I think my generation was that way. There was lazy people and hardworking people. And there was people that wanted to put in the work and there's people that didn't want to put in the work. I think we've had that forever. I think that's human nature. The only difference is the audience right now. You didn't have social media then. We have social media, so everybody hears it all the time and things go viral. And it's um it's a huge factor that your generation didn't have. Yeah, that's that's true, and that um, that even ties in the, to something else. On the, I was thinking about the engagement, um, being able to engage people. Now it's it's harder to engage because everything's so fast, right? Like, I mean, we swipe right or swipe left in a moment and make decisions in a second, so it's hard Des- to engage people for long. Fatigue, yeah, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to make. Uh, people think about things long term. Well, there's even like a, there's a sociological concept called dis- decision fatigue. When you go into the, even the grocery store and people get so stressed out because there's so many options for one item. There's ten tomato sauces. There's fifteen different breads. See, so let me go back and answer your question about why I'm a linear thinker. I go in the grocery store, I find tomato paste, the cheapest one, I pick it up yes. and I leave. Yes. There's not a decision to be made. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the, the lowest price per ounce. But it's kind of funny, even that's like the, the actual price tag. Say if you have a $4 uh, loaf of bread, you might be getting actually less, even though the price per ounce on the other one is far cheaper. So it's like, well, we need to look at price per ounce instead of the actual price tag because even business gets you on that. Sorry, that was also another random thing. But decision fatigue. <laughs> You were going on that um, social media, um, the tangent that you were about to run on that I cut you off at. <laughs> yeah, just um, so e- even 10 years ago, you know, eight years ago when I started teaching, you know, we used to say that we had a seven minute attention span, right? Um, we had to we had to change um, what we did in the classroom every seven minutes because we lost people. And that was, you know, where does that come from? It's television. Right. You have seven minutes of TV and you have a two minute break and then you have seven minutes of TV and you have a two minute break. And we've all learned all that. We don't have that anymore. You know, kids don't watch TV anymore. It's YouTube and it's and so it's instant. So so now even it's even more difficult to engage for long periods of time. We have to we have to get people thinking on their own and, and going through the process and learning on their own. Um to keep them engaged and excited mm. about what's what's happening. So do you think that your um, goal of tapping into their their goals and their dreams and their passions helps with that engagement? Yeah, because now they're invested. Exactly. They have a stake, right? They, they, they have an investment in it. And this is not about me. And I, and I get that a lot from students and I, and I address it a lot. This is not me against you. This is not 
me against your grade or you against my grading system whatsoever. And I, and I say this a lot, which is weird in the education. I, I don't care about your grade. I don't care about your attendance. I don't care about, I even say, you know, hope my boss doesn't hear this. I say, I don't care about your diploma, right? Like, <laughs> I don't care if you graduate or not. That's not I'll make, the, I'll make sure to send it to your boss. Thanks. Please edit that out. <laughs> um, no, um, you know, that's not the important thing. Mm-hmm. And so, so then again, they're, they're invested in this system and they're there for, for something besides yeah. uh, fighting for a grade, right? How many times do we mm-hmm. do that? We, we, oh, we got to make sure we get a B or an A minus or, you know, there's a so much is, stress on that too. Did you listen to, uh, uh, my first podcast with Denise, the fourth cop? Yeah. She talked about her, her uh, testing anxiety, how it has, it, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it debilitated her. And there's so many people like that. I had that when I first took, I failed my, uh, pilot's test my very first time. Um, and it was like the entire, my entire instruction up until that point was, you know, study for the check ride, study for the check ride, study, the check ride's the biggest deal that you'll ever have to do and blah, blah, blah. And there was so much pressure on getting past that. They, it wasn't a, 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 B, C or D grade. It was pass or fail. Right. And there was so much pressure. So it seems like you're really taking a lot of that pressure off and it seems like your students are really benefiting from it. And, and then everything we do is, is, is practical, Right. I teach my guys in CNC trigonometry. They don't even know that I'm teaching them trigonometry. <laughs> I don't even, that's a cuss word in my classroom. Like you don't ever say that word in front of students. They will freak out if you say trigonometry. Huh. But when I, when I give them an application of how do we use this in machining, figuring out this angle um, where we create a right triangle mm. and then we have this relationship between the right triangle and the opposite and adjacent sides and blah, 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 right? Pythagorean mm. theorem, mm. you know. Um, then, then, oh yeah, that makes sense because I see it. So, wow. so we make it really relative to exactly what they're trying to learn. I don't, last thing I want to do is stand and teach a math class, mm-hmm. right? But if I can show them how it relates to their field and why it's important to them, again, they're invested in knowing that information. 36 times 56. Uh, 2016. 2016 divided by five. Uh, that's not an even, it's 403.2. <laughs> oh my God. There's a decimal in there. See, 403.2. I'm Rain Man. <laughs> Judge Watner, 430. That was that was awesome. Right. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Okay, so so the idea of some, of a student even there's right now 800 people grabbing a calculator trying to find. I know, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> I used to joke about that all the time. I just make up fake numbers. You, you can't tell. <laughs> You'll never figure it out. Well, I'm actually I'm gonna listen to it again at <laughs> point we're at 48 minutes. So at that point, I'm gonna look at it and actually see, and then I'm gonna call you and say you really screwed this up, Rick. I gotta do this whole section now. Um, and first off, if I had 800 listeners within a week of my launch, I'd be very like (laughs) pat myself on the back. I'm not there yet. Um, but the idea of students having like shutting down with the notion of trigonometry even being said, that's like a, that's like a, like it's a pseudo fear that shuts their brain down. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Because we've made that something you're going to learn trigonometry or calculus or, Um, you know, but why has it become physics or yeah, there's this, cause I've learned things throughout my certificates that I've realized later are trigonometry. And I was like, Oh, that's really cool. I was learning trig. Um, and I'm still terrified of calculus. I I won't take a calculus class because I've always been terrible. I'm I'm dyslexic only with numbers. So whenever, and that's, I know a lot of people use that. I failed my calculus class. Really? Yeah. I can't, if I'm a linear thinker, it's, uh, you talk, talk unreal numbers and hypothetical mathematical situations. I'm out. I can't even think about did it. Did you do all with proofs? Like geometry proofs? Uh, yeah. I mean, ge- geometry, 
uh, I'm good at yeah. algebra. I'm good at, but but it, you know, when you get past that, mm. I'm, I don't even want to talk about it. You know what's weird? Because I talk about I'm a I'm a linear thinker, and I was just thinking about this the other day. I cannot draw three dimensionally, and I'm a three. I work in three dimensional CAD geometry all hmm. the time. You know the little mm-hmm. box thing that looks like a cube. I can't draw that thing. There's no way. Really? Yep. Two dimensional or showing it in multiple views two dimensionally. If, sorry, not getting too far but, off. But you can. But, but you can totally like recite numbers and do calculations in your head like that. Right. But you can't draw a cube. But I can't see. Three-dimensionally or not, I don't know why. I just can't. Dude, that's so fascinating. And I work in three-dimensional geometry all the time. I draw. I'm a CAD. I'm a, mm. I'm a guru on CAD CAM software that can draw all kinds of that's, complicated assemblies. That's what assemblies. machines do, right? Oh, yeah. I can draw the tar <laughs> out of that in a computer software. But Did, if you gave me a pen and pencil, I can't even see it to draw. I'm telling you, I could not mm. draw a cube right now. So with technology, as it hasn't been incorporated into your field Previously, before technology, did you have to do a lot of the pen and paper? And did that really screw with you? 100%. Well, the pen and paper was the way I learned, which was the best way for me to learn, I think. I mean, because, again, I could see it all and it all made sense. Mm. And and computer, you know, CNC programming, this computer-controlled software programming, it's very linear. It's step by step by step by step. You have to tell every action that the machine does, you know, one step at a time. So hmm. to really fit into my brain that way. So so do you not do well with uh, ideas and theories, like uh, abstract ideas and theories? No. Hmm. I, I mean. Like things that, things that aren't super practical, things you can't really like apply practically. Well, do you I th- struggle with I that? Think, I think when people bring something like that up, I make a decision on it and I put it away and I'm done. I'm next thing. Hmm. I'm not going to sit and ponder for yeah. hours on end of, you know. <laughs> I took an ethics class and it was like that. I mean, which I mean, ethics are practical, of course, um, but there's a lot of that in my debates. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> abstract ideas, but I like thoughts. I like there's people that should be doing that, yeah. and I, you know, I don't have any problem with guys that are, you know, into philosophy and you know, and they're really thinking about things beyond you know easy understanding, and they're they're debating questions like that. Great. So how do you, because there's a lot of that happening right now in politics, in our entire world with the uh, explosion in social media on these ideas that a lot of times science doesn't back up. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So how do you kind of navigate that in your own head? I I think I separate out a lot of the, because a lot of the stuff you're talking about is feeling and emotion based yes right like we get you know like okay you you can have these feelings and emotions and have this reaction to someone's personality or thought process you know we have a strong reaction to people's even speech patterns right their speech patterns are off they stutter we assume that they're not completely telling the truth so there's we make all sorts of assumptions i i kind of try to separate that fast and say you know what are the facts here is this provable or not provable because they're yeah. even they're even in trying to incorporate. There was, oh man, I was listening to the radio. Oh, it was probably six months ago. I'm gonna have to follow up on this. Um, but there was they're trying to incorporate how logic is a white based uh, mentality, and it should be logic and reason should be completely thrown out because it's a white supremacist idea, which is the foundation of the scientific method. I think you can go back to logic and reason way before any white supremacists are around. I would hope. Hmm. 
But I mean, that's the fabric of everything that we make choices on, you know, and it's supposed to make choices on. Right. So, so there's uh, you know, it reminds me of that old movie butterfly effect, right? Mm-hmm. Every time you make a decision, there's just consequences, but, but I never go back and ponder decisions and say, was this, listen, I have this much information right now. And so I make a decision based on what I know right now. And if that doesn't work out a hundred percent the way I thought it would, that doesn't mean the other decision was right. It means I made the best decision I could in the moment that I was in. But At once the time. decision's made, it's kind of it's water under the bridge, mm-hmm. right? Like, what do we, you know? I, I typically will find myself beating myself up whenever I've made a wrong decision. Well, I can or, make I can you tell know? you millions of them, but but what I can't tell you is if I would have made the other decision, would it have been better? Because you that's a because you don't know that's a, a oh gosh in time. Uh, alternate reality tracker there's an actual times a time theory talking about how every decision you make actually creates a new dimension in a or is it it's in a separate dimension but it creates an alternate reality of your current reality branching off i think it's actually string theory it might actually be string theory um and there's some really cool research on like there's like 12 actual provable dimensions of time and we're only living in what four four yeah four but there's actually provable 12. And so with all the, all these things with... Cool, but why do I care? See, okay, so this guy... <laughs> I'm living in four. Okay. Why do this I care? This is perfect. This is perfect. Yeah. Okay. So there are 12 dimensions, but what why you might want to care is what the... Like, I, I the believe... Al- by the way, I believe that. Yeah. And I actually believe... Uh, not going off on religion, but I believe there's even... a. Uh, references to that. There's things happening in dimensions we don't understand. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, there's stuff happening and I believe it, but I don't live in it. So I, which is, I get that. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't determine what way I drive to work tomorrow. <laughs> yes, I get that. But for me, it's kind of fun <laughs> to think about like, cause, cause like things um, like the Tic Tac, the alien ship that right. came from like 6,000 right. feet to the surface of the ocean and then zoom back up within a millisecond. Like things like that, and the the new element that they created, element uh, or they found they found as part of the boosters for these spaceships, right. element what one fifteen or something like that. Um, these are they're made outside of our entire realm of physics and dimension. Yeah. So the I know I know what you're saying. It doesn't have any ap- applicable notion today. So there's people who are probably much smarter than me, probably like you, that can. They will ponder that and they will come up with conclusions and ideas or, or, or theories of what that could be. Um, I guess I'm the guy when the alien lands and crawls out of the ship with, uh, you know, whatever weapon he has in his hand, then it becomes my problem. <laughs> <laughs> or you got to fix the ship. <laughs> yeah, I got to f- make them apart to get back. Do you, That's with with uh, these applicable theories, I guess they're really not applicable right now. Um, but a lot of these theories of thinking outside the box on whatever issue that it could, there could be, that's kind of how science is further away. So you as an educator in a scientific field, CNC, mechan- machinery, engineering, how do you apply some of these outside-the-box outside notions to further your field? So I, I debate the argument that science is based on things – not seen and not able to be analyzed. I didn't say based. I said that or it, uh, yeah. it has a, it's a huge factor. 
Huge factor, thinking outside the box, because you have to first start with an idea before you can start making it provable, right? Yeah, I, I think that that applies a lot. Sure, not always. Well, but then tell me, teach me. Well, what are your I, ideas? I don't know that I. I'm not sure I can put my finger on in one second, but but I but I I haven't I have an issue with a lot of science that's being uh, put out that's that's not, you know, science is is a. Uh, is by observation. Observational science, yeah. Right. So, I mean, there, there needs to be some, some way to prove or disprove, and that has to happen through either, either mathematically, right, statistically, mm-hmm. or, or some mathematics, or, or by observation. So having a theory of science, that term bothers me. Um, let me now, let you me do have things like, like, like quantum physics and things that are actually, I mean, they're wholly based on, mm. you know, theorizing things that, you know, we can't put our hands on, I guess, but and I think like dark matter, um, is we've actually never seen dark matter, but the absence of it's not a seeing, movie, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, <don't. laughs> I was I was researching something. I don't, I don't know how I got on the 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 rabbit hole, the black hole of dark black. matter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the it's a heavy topic. Yes, the idea of dark matter. Um, originally, from what I understand, originally came to be like the theory of dark matter that actually exists is because we can't see it and we should be able to, but we see its effects on other things. So the absence of something there actually proves its existence. So I know it's super weird, but no, 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 I, yeah, I got you. So uh, yes, I, a lot of the scientific ideas that are not observable, not testable. And that's like, we, we, we have to get it testable. We have to get it retestable with whatever, whatever experiment we, we do, it has to be replicated, right? That's, that's how it becomes sure. an actual fact, a scientific uh, law. Um, but it's, step one is what if, what if, and then you lead to, okay, what if then this, okay, then let's see if we can add this. Okay. Then that's provable. And then you test it. So, in my opinion, not all scientific theories are starting from a testable idea. It, start, it first starts from a random, random ass thought that came out of nowhere, and then you start testing it. And so, so, but at what point do we cross over to the fact that of calling something science? Is it is it after it's provable, or is it theoretical still? Well, theoretical. theoretical. And when, when it is theoretical, in the realm of theory, theory of idea, idea and theory are for me interchangeable right now, whether that's true, no, I don't know. Um, in the realm of theory, that's kind of like in your chronological linear sequence, that's step zero. Step five would be, okay, let's test it. Can we practically test it? Um, and I only well, bring- what, what about the point where you have an observation- <clears throat> um, and then that observation leads you to have to theorize something is at play. Then you mathematically or through through more observation prove that's true, right? So it's, it's not always just starting from an idea. Yeah, I, I'm thinking just uh, yes, I see a, what you're saying. A terrible analogy, and I don't even know if it's true, but I'm thinking of Newton under the apple tree, right? The apple hits him. Um, and then he had the idea. And then he goes, "What in the world caused that to come apart and fall towards the earth?" Right. So maybe there's this other thing happening, and he starts theorizing about that idea. But it was it started through observation, and, and I know there's this whole realm of science that is is based on things. And I I hate to 
be repetitive, but I'll go back and say, okay, there's black matter 16 trillion light years from me, and I care because... <laughs> Well, this is this is why I, I bring up a, that. See what a terrible, thinking small box thinker I am. No, that no. So I originally brought that idea up because how does how does theoretical science observation, whether it's observational first or theoretical first, leading to observational, like almost like okay, I know um, I know there's a door there. I can't really see the outside, but I know there's an outside possibly, right? So I just got to open the door because I first saw the up, first saw the door. But I also know there's outside without a door. So you being an educator uh, leading this program, whether it's observational or theoretical first, how does that kind of outside-the-box thinking further your field? I know it's a super generic like – Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I think I know where you're, you're kind of going because we, we – we do do that. We, um, in lots of fields, especially in my field. So, so in CNC machining and manufacturing, I don't know if we've really explained that well enough yet, but yeah. Yeah. Can we pause and just tell me what manufacturing CNC actually is? So, so manufacturing is a very broad term, right? In fact, manufacturing is, uh, manufacturing drives our economy. 27% of our GDP is manufacturing. So manufacturing talks about a whole lot of things. Mm. Making T-shirts, that's manufacturing. Or aerospace. Or aerospace parts. Yeah. Or all the cars, all the parts that go in your car. Um, doing some research for a book I just did. I, I you know, Google um, how many machined parts are in a car. It's like, this average is like 5,000 parts are ran through a machine and, and produced somehow. Manufactured. And even the building of the car is manufacturing, right? So manufacturing is a huge uh, term. Specifically, what, what we do is um, we, we call it a subtractive process. So we start with a block of material. That material could be uh, aluminum, steel, lead, gold. plastic, gold. Mm. It, could be, it could be anything. And we cut it. I think of it like a sculptor, right? He starts with a solid piece of stone mm -hmm. and he carves away everything that he doesn't need. That's what we do. So we cut away all okay. the other material besides um, what we need to, to leave some finished part. And that, that part could go to anywhere. And there is, I mean, I could take you in any room that you've ever been in your life and I could show you something that was manufactured through a CNC machine. You have a guitar hanging on the wall behind you. Mm -hmm. That that made that body was made on a CNC machine. I guarantee. You. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's almost anywhere. So it's a really broad field that can you can really get into all sorts of um, medical supplies. Uh, you think about all replacement joints, right? Mm -hmm. um, knee knee replacements, hip replacements, um, even surgical items like like uh, pliers and forceps and mm -hmm. uh, syringes all are made CNC. through CNC machine. Somehow. So it's a manufacturing process where we where we basically remove metal away of some sort. It doesn't have to be metal, but remove material away <laughs> to create some sort of usable product. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a whole new field, speaking of new fields of science, there's a whole new field of science called additive manufacturing. What? Additive. Additive, so, okay. What I've always done is what's called subtractive manufacturing, where we start with something big and make mm -hmm. it something small. There's a whole new field called additive manufacturing, and most people think of that right off the bat as 3D printing, uh, which is an an additive process but uh really you know right now at this stage we're really just working with plastics and making you know i, I kind of joke i have a guy who worked at, that wanted a 3d printing machine and he asked me about it. i said it's cool man go buy 
$1,200 thing to make your kids, you know, 99 cent toys with. <laughs> That's pretty much what everyone's using them for. Uh, but there is a place for it. And, and now we've actually moved into um, doing that with, with steel, with metal. Of some, It takes every different type of material takes a different type of machine. So it's, steel is additive? Right. So they now they can they take powdered steel and they, they run it through, a, it really looks like a hot glue gun nozzle, but they use a laser for steel and actually melt the material in place so they can build things from the ground up from nothing. Mm, like from so, like molds? So would you create a mold first? Well, so a mold a mold is something that, um, you could do a mold in there, but that's probably not the best application. A mold is usually made for like making a casting or some die cast piece on right? You can actually just make the die cast piece. You don't need to oh, make wow. a mold to do it over and over. Now you could, but that's not a really good way to do it. So, so will that destroy that side of the industry? No. Okay. No, it has. Uh, you know, you're going to really take me off into the science and engineering world, but it, it has it has an inherent issues. The the way uh, the metal is melted together inherently gives it cracks and defects, mm. which you know maybe at some point in time we'll get over. But but really, a homogenous piece of material machine is going to be way have a lot better engineering characteristics okay. uh, than something that was, that was made from Adam. So anyway, back to the topic, I guess, was... Yeah. was uh, Furthering the field? Yeah, so, so we use um, CNC, we use machines, which maybe some of you know uh, what a mill, like a mill is or a lathe, those old types of machines. We use those now, but they're just now all computerized. So we use a computer to drive that machine, and now we do it at just rapid speeds and... Wait, so re rewind. A mill for what? So let's start with a lathe first. Okay. A lathe makes round or cylindrical shaped parts. Okay. So if you think of a, a, a water bottle or a, a an axle on a car, something that's round or cylindrical in shape is made through a through a lathe. Things that are irregular shaped, like the guitar body I looked at a second ago, mm -hmm. would be made on a mill. Okay. Because it's... The difference is in a lathe, the material spins around and you cut it. And in a mill, it does the opposite. You clamp the material down and cut around it. Okay. More than you ever wanted to know about machining right there. No, I mean, no, that's like, so again, reason why I started this podcast so I can learn. This is, these are things I want to know about. So, so I think your question was, will this ever take away from the industry? It never, it never will. I mean, it, there's, there's a place for it for sure inside the industry, but there's always going to be. And, and. <laughs> The more complex and the more crazy engineering we have, as we test the limits on material and engineering specs and, and doing things like, you know, sending SpaceX rockets to, you know, and then retrieving the yeah, rockets. It's the exact and all same that rockets. Kind of stuff, yeah. Right? Like, did that, you watch that? Oh, yeah. The very first was, time we did it? I was, I was like, the one he landed sideways or no, the, <laughs> the first time he actually landed it on it? The very first time we did all three at once. Dude, that's like insanity. He's Do done you, more. He's done more uh, with his company in like three years than NASA did, and yeah. you know, I mean, because he had a, and that's you know, you get off on politics, but there's an economic uh, point to that. I mean, where uh, he had an economic stake in that, and he had to make you know, I just can't throw the rockets away every time, mm. right? Like that cost me a ton of money. So, how much do you know is one rocket? Does it cost to make? Do you, I, do you know? I don't have any idea. It's got to be 10 million plus, I would imagine. Yeah. So now he's now reusing them. Disposable, yeah. right? And, and now, now he's reusing them. So, yeah. and if you think about the way, I mean, you know, you, you were, you were a rocket kid when you were yeah. little, but. Uh, you don't know me. Yeah, I know. You know. <laughs> um, 
they they shoot those things up and really there's a little tiny capsule on top that's like you know seven feet tall by you know mm. eight feet wide that's the only thing they're trying to launch everything under that is rocket just to get it up there. fuel and rocket to yeah. launch it so um all of that was wasted except for that little piece at the top so now he's figured out a way to, to reuse that but his engineering grows and and one of the cool things he's doing he's working with really exotic metals and he's and he's trying new new he's really testing the limits of engineering mm. um on some of the stuff he's doing. And he does it all in-house. He does it all under his own roof. I mean, he doesn't yeah. farm it out. What's, what's really cool about Elon Musk is, uh, like, we're, we're now seeing where he is. But I don't know if a lot of people knew that, you know, years and years ago, he won. He's like, okay, we're going to go to Mars. We need to go to Mars. Bottom line. People laughed. Um, but he knew he couldn't just start a company and go to Mars. So he's created multiple companies, sold all the companies, bought Tesla or made Tesla. And then all the proceeds from Tesla, which he, he surpassed the number one car company. I think BMW was the number one car company in sales and in, in profits. And he surpassed them, I think, in like eight years, roughly. Um, and then all the proceeds for, for Tesla are now funding SpaceX. So it was like this multiple step process, you know? Well, he's, he's, he's insane. Yeah. I mean, he's literally like a genius, but insane. And we're not even he, talking about the neural net. Yeah, we didn't get into that yet. But but if you go back and look at the history of Tesla, Tesla was bankrupt. I mean, he put all of his money in it up front and couldn't couldn't make it work. The only way he and the problem was always the battery. So what did he do? Mm-hmm. He said, "I'm just going to build a battery factory and I'll put my own engineers on it and I'll make it work the way I want it to work." But it was bankrupt. He was pre-selling cars for like a hundred grand, and he'd never produced a car yet. <laughs> he never had a sellable item. I mean, he was, he went way out on a limb. Let me tell you a story about him and a really cool story about him and SpaceX. Okay. So I kind of told you earlier about how the NASA had created this, this system to actually kind of help fund the research for these. So he, um, he gets a million dollars from, from NASA to, to start working on his prototype in which, you know, a million dollars is, it's not going that far. Mm-hmm. Um, so he puts a bunch more money if, of his in, and I'm sure money out of Tesla in, and and he uh, builds kind of a, a working prototype, which they again say, okay, so we're going to give you some more money. I think it was about twenty million dollars to to continue research. So he builds this Dragon uh, rocket, right, which is the the one that's you know so well known now, and he he goes to launch the first one, and it explodes. So he has to build another one. So he builds another one. He puts that one up and if I remember that one went it went in the air but not very far is that the one that went and landed in the ocean or no I'm not talking about when he separated this is way before this is when he's still trying to get basically the contract from NASA okay so So that that one basically failed too probably what 10-15 years ago and I don't know I don't know how much you know how much of the story's been embellished but Elon Musk said that when that third dragon rocket when they towed it to the launch pad he said, I had enough money. All my credit cards were maxed out. All my bank accounts wiped out. I had enough money to pay for the gas to, to tow that thing to the to the, uh, to oh launch pad. And that was it. He goes, if that thing would have blown up, he goes, Tesla would have been done. I'd have been done. We'd all have been done. It would have been over with. And that one successfully launched. But he was at, but that's crazy. Oh, my gosh. Um, he literally risked everything for this. Yeah. Yeah. And pulled it off. And it takes somebody like that to, to risk it and pull it off. And, you know, now, you know, you talk about how, how well he's doing now, but mm-hmm. man, he had the risky tech at Tesla, the risky tech here, and now he's getting into other things. Whenever, uh, flamethrowers. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, it's not a flamethrower. Remember, yes. you, it, this is not a flamethrower. <laughs> and it sold within like an hour or something like that, yeah. this entire stock. How much do you think of uh, risk versus reward is... Because, I mean, because the people who like Elon, so much risk, like beyond what anybody would probably ever do, but now it's paid off. So it seems like there's always this balance of risk versus reward in every decision that we make. And the people who are playing it way too safe are just, are not going to really, like in many people's eyes, aren't going to be making it, so to speak, you know? So it's like, how do you balance like the risk versus reward in your decision making? Well, there's there's a there's a whole another group of people that we want to don't want to talk about that took all of that risk and didn't make it too. Yeah. I mean, for every Elon Musk, there's a thousand, yeah, ten thousand guys who yeah. who who mortgaged their house and everything yeah. they and had. That's my and, point. And lost. Yeah. Uh, I I knew a guy in Missouri that was uh, one to his dream was to drive a uh, a uh, NHRA. Uh, dragster and he had a really successful business he mortgaged it mortgaged his house where he never got off the ground his mm. wife left him. i mean there's all kinds of stories like that right so that's where i'm not really good i've had i've owned two or three businesses I and that. i shut them down before they ever did anything because the risk it became too much i wasn't re- willing to make the risk mm-hmm. yeah I, I had a company in in california i was making wheel adapters for cars it's a real long story, but it got to a point where it was too much work to do part-time, but I didn't have a guarantee that I could make money on it nonstop, full-time. Mm. And it would have been risking my family's livelihood at the time we were newly married. And, you know, um, I don't know exactly where the kids were at at that time, but, but I mean, we were pretty newly married. And I'm like, I'm not, mm. I'm not giving up something that's pretty solid um, for something that, that might work out. I sold that to my brother-in-law and he turned it into a million dollar year business. Mm. But he was in the industry and I wasn't. So there's was a difference there. He mm. he had connections that I didn't have. So I don't what I made it, I don't know. So I don't know. There's there's definitely a risk and reward in, in everything. I tend to be pretty conservative. Uh you know, I'm just not I, I got too many other people that count on you. Count on me yeah. that I really I've really been able to go out on a limb and and do something. I started. A, I started a company in Missouri doing. It goes back to actually, it was a consulting company for manufacturing. But the end goal was to build a uh, a teaching uh, course, uh, basically a tech school. I hate to call it that because it was. It probably would have been a not really a, a school uh, per se, but it would have been a, a teaching academy for people who want to do machining and I want to do that. And I got to the same point. I got to a point where. Uh, I spent all the money I had, and so now I'm going to way go mm-hmm. out on a limb financially, and hope that this works out. And uh, I just couldn't do it. I so, do it. so what you tried to start then is what you're doing now, kind of. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But I went in with a, you know, again, I guess I'm not that much of a risk taker anymore. But I mean, uh, I went in with a company who's been around for 75 years and has 23 campuses across the country, yeah. and and they Safe were making bet. a huge. They were making a huge investment yeah. and and they were really taking a chance on me more than I was on them. Right? It, it seems like, yeah, it seems like we have to divert. Like, so in, in research, in, uh, uh, not research, um, in retirement funds, like with your 401k, your fourth or B, all, whether, whether you have a pension, um, the whole goal of safety is to diversify, right? So the longer 
you invest in your retirement accounts, um, the more diversified your portfolio is, the, your your chances of losing your money are very slim. But you'll you if you talk to a financial advisor, that curve turns as you get in your forties and fifties and beyond. Well, that's why you gotta you gotta minimize risk. Then you start minimizing risk, and yes. you're, you're not investing in Tesla. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's what's funny right now. I'm I have very high risk right now. All my my portfolios, I'm getting like return like. 20, 30% returns yeah. over like a 10 year period. And if it bombs, you don't care. No, because I have 30 more years. Right. Yeah. So now when I'm 40, 50 years old, I'm, or hopefully, hopefully before that, but um, I'm going to minimize that risk. So uh, I'll bring this up in retirement because it's a diversified portfolio. And it seems like people don't do that in their real life. It's like we, the wisdom says to diversify your portfolio, but why don't we diversify risk within our social spheres now, you know? So like your your all eggs in one basket wasn't that was not a good bet and because it was too much risk. But what if you had a little bit more, you know, a second job here that was kind of giving you some passive income that would kind of alleviate some of that. And what if you know so and so was be able to work and so you had partners and that kind of helps diversify that risk. How much of that do you think um, applies to our current life and our social 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 spheres in our decision making process today? Yeah, I think there's. Uh you know, I think you have people on different, different sides of that. And I think, I think we're less risk takers than we were for sure. Um, Why do you think that is? I think maybe it goes back to the same thing. Like we want instant, you know, we want gratification and and people realize that, you know, you don't, you don't go start a business and and you know what? It's probably easier now than it used to be because you can go on, you can start a business and go on Amazon and sell it and you don't have to have any brick and mortar and, you don't have to have overhead. investment, right? Overhead, yeah. and I mean, it's probably easier than it was before. But um, I think there's just such a such a culture of instant gratification, and, mm. and and also entitlement too. I mean, people think that they're entitled to to things that that they aren't really willing to work for. So mm. I don't I don't know the risk reward thing is interesting. There's there still is a group that's really willing to risk, and they're still they're still being really creative and thinking out of the box. And you know, all these big companies we have now, there's a guy that. It was a really good timing thing, but they really thought out of the box to pull off some of the things that they did, um, you know, and they've been successful at it. And I think, but I think a lot of us are just don't want to go that far out on a limb. Mm-hmm. And it's uncomfortable out there, man. I mean, I, yeah. my, my life, I, you know, I, by the time I got married, um, I was 29 years old and I had already had, I already had a, you know, years of failure and stuff behind me. And I was like, I'm not risking anything anymore. I'm not, I can't start over. And I, again, I, you know, we had kids soon and, and it wasn't, I wasn't going to risk, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of felt like I took a risk when I went to Lincoln. Cause I, you know, I really did change career fields, but I always did have a backdoor plan. Right. I mean, there was, I could always go back. I could still do that. I could go back in machining and, and do something. And, and in my career, I was really diverse. I could run a bunch of different things and I had a bunch of different experience that really could get me anywhere. But it's, mm. you know, I don't know. It's a pretty safe field. But um, mm. I wonder if so. So I started digging into um, the psychology of flakiness. Um, and I'm sure you have to deal with a lot of this at your school, especially. And it seems I, I don't know. I can't, I can't. Not just from students. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the psychology of flakiness is something that has been come up a lot for me. Um, just, just friends being flaky, uh, situations where, 
Um, there's, it's just, a, I've seen a pattern, um, when I see those type of patterns and I'm sure you've seen it too. Um, people just are very flaky today and it seems like it's more in my generation. Do you see that or do you not, do you see it elsewhere? I don't buy a lot of that stuff. I don't buy, I, I buy flakiness for sure, yeah. but I, I, I really have a hard time, uh, getting over again. I don't the like the millennials yeah. did this and the, I think we're, you know, my dad called me lazy, you know, for years when I was a little kid. I mean, I mean, I always think that there's, there's that perception of the old guy, you know, all oh, these kids never worked as hard as we did. I don't know. I mean, hmm. I see a lot of millennials, a lot of kids, you know, that I see in school that are just. Well, is laziness the same as flakiness to you? Cause I no, see them, I see no, them different. No. Yeah. No, uh, they're not the same, but my point was I, I, I really shy away from the, Dividing it by generational stuff. I think, okay. I think flaky, you know, there's been a lot of people flaky there. Yeah. have been around a long time, but, uh, yeah. I know in my social spheres. So that, that's, a, it's, it's young. That, that irritates me to know it because I'm, I, you know, I'm on time when I go places. If I say I'm going to be there, I'm, I'm there, you know, whether I want to or not, you yeah. know, I'm, it really bothers me. Um, I think, you know, we, we talk about it in school all the time, we, but we talk about it as professionalism. It's just not professional, be that way. So I, you know, I don't know. Is people were people more flaky than they were? I don't know. People have been flaky forever. Mm. Um, I know, like when I started digging into it, because I mean, I have, I have like had to back out on things I've had because of like legit situations. Um, but I definitely don't try and make that my pattern. Like I, I try and if I commit to something, I try and make sure I do it, no matter what, even if I don't want to do it or if I hate it. Um, but I started digging into like the psychology of it and a lot of people, um, don't like conflicts. They typically don't like to say no. Uh, And this is one theory on psychology today that I was, I was researching and they'll say yes, because they don't want to say no, because they don't like conflict, which is kind of similar to getting into debates on social media versus in person, because on the screen with technology, it's very easy to say yes or no, or agree to something or debate something. But as soon as you get in person, that conflict resolution is a moot point. Um, even when Zach was on here, him and I disagree on some things and, but like we, we've both learned to be able to, to, to disagree in a good way. And uh, from what I understand, the, there's a close tie to that technology screen um, being a debate issue and not having conflict and being flaky because both are the yes type of people um, because they don't want to have that uh, conflict with somebody. It's easier to say no the day of than it is to say, let me get back with you or, you know, and there's some pretty weird things and how it digs into depression and anxiety as well. Um, and decision fatigue, it's all linked with how somebody being flaky. So this is definitely not me. Um, judging somebody because I've, I've had that as well, but, um, it is a pattern with a lot of people in our society right now. And it's a very interesting study. Yeah. And I, I think, I think something you had in there about social media. Um, I saw <clears throat> something the other day on Facebook it was a quote from Mike Tyson about, you know, people, people use social media now, or they can be tough on social media now because we've taken away the opportunity to get punched in the face, yeah, you know, something like that. Um, <laughs> And I think there's some truth in that, right? Like, like we can be on social media and say whatever we want and do whatever we want. There's no no repercussions, no face to face, no conflict uh, from that. Uh, but you know, I I think we just have I think we have some, you know, 
we have some parenting issues going on that I think lead people to, you know, maybe adds to the flakiness and the, I mean, are we teaching our kids that, that level of uh, respect and professionalism and, and being trustworthy and all those things? I mean, are we still doing that as parents? I, well, that, that goes back to what you said earlier. That, that is, what you just said is a generational thing, though. Yeah, yeah. So you earlier you said you're not, you try and separate the generations, but if it's a parenting issue, that means it is a generational thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, it does. I guess, I guess uh, it's hard not to agree that it hasn't gotten a little bit worse. But um, You're saying more as a, as a broad scope. It's, it's not a broad generational issue, but maybe some of I these. I think it's cultural more than generational. Okay, explain I that. I think culturally we have moved as that's okay and acceptable. The American so, culture? Yeah. Because yeah. Europe's like that, though. And we typically follow uh, Europe in most things, even the flu. <laughs> <laughs> right afterwards. Right afterwards. Uh, Jet stream takes it this way. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I definitely don't know about European culture by any means, but I, but I do see culturally things are more acceptable and more, you know, than they have been. Um, hmm. So I, I think, you know, as a whole, I mean, you, you can go back, it's easily go back and trace and just look where we've gone culturally in our shift in morality and values. And, you know, in, in morality is one issue, values is another. I mean, do we value being on time? Do we value, you know, communication? Do we value being trustworthy? I don't know. Do we value that stuff anymore? I don't know. Well, it, it's hard when... Um, but I, I don't want to say it's generational, like like okay. your group that was born in 1998 to 1994, you know, Wait, lost we, So negative of, four? So well, You know what <laughs> I mean? Negative it's, four? <laughs> it's, not, it's not some age gap where you can say those people have yeah. become flaky or, you know, <clears throat> became culturally, you know, different. I think we've just progressed and we just keep walking forward down that line. Do you think people know they're flaky? Yeah, but I don't know if they care. <laughs> That's fair. It's okay, man. He'll get over it. You know, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if they care, you know. It goes to, uh, you earlier talking about morality, um, the debate of subjective morality versus objective morality. And that's a whole nother thing that we don't necessarily need to get into. But, it, you know, when, when a person's own uh, rights. Yeah, but what be, does subjective morality mean? Like I get to choose if it's moral or not? Okay. Yes. Well. That's, but that's, that's an that issue right now. fits everything that I want to do. Exactly. Right. Okay. And, but, that's simple enough. Yes. But the subjective morality is rampant right now. It's. Um, my what about subjective truth and objective truth? It's the same thing. Is there truth or is there not truth? Yeah. Well, it just depends. And the truth. That's a wormhole. Yes, but the, it's dark matter. <laughs> but the truth, again, like uh, an uh, uh, individual's truth um, is subjective to them. That means that nobody else can tell them what is right and wrong. And that's kind of the breakdown of a lot of societal trends right now. Whenever one person's truth is truth and it can be true because it is true to them. And that's why <clears throat> logic and reason have kind of gone out the door as well in a lot of situations. I'm not saying that, again, this is not a broad scope necessarily, but this happens a lot and I've seen it happen in these kind of pockets of culture. I'm not saying it's happening to everyone, but it does happen quite a bit. And I've seen it pop up a lot more, you know? Yeah, but I hate to break it to everybody, but truth is truth. Right. I mean, you go back to having the science conversation mm -hmm. again, 
you know, if the apple fell from the tree because, you know, uh, you, you can debate. The laws of physics. Yeah, you can debate uh, those things if you want to or say that it, that's not what it is. You know, it's not gravity. What is it? It's some, uh, you know, alien pulling thing to send it. I don't know what, whatever the theory might be, but it doesn't debate the fact that it, that it's truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, truth is truth. Um, now, are we going to, are we going to negotiate that and talk about, you know, truth based on experience and culture and yeah. heritage and all those things? I, I mean, yeah, I, I can see where, where, where we can get off on tangents on that. But the bottom line is you got to start with, you know, truth is truth. I mean, it's not relative. It's not really relative. Hmm. And that's again, when, when science and, and logic start to go out the window, we kind of see that, um, people are taking objectivity and making it subject or taking like, uh, truth, like what you're saying and making it subjective, not objective. And that's, what's hard. You know, whenever, when scientific theories become laws, They've proven the test of time, you know, for the most part, right? And that's based on things that have been proven and objective truths. So I had a son. I just, I don't know what popped this in. Just now? No. Okay. Uh, A few minutes ago. Um, (laughs) I had a son years ago uh, that that we went into a a bookstore and he wanted me to buy him a, a book marker, right? A page marker. And I go, no, we're not here to buy that. So we walk out of the store and get in the car and and... I see the bookmark and I said, where did you get that from? I took it. He immediately begins to cry and get upset. So, so why did, why did he cry and get upset? Like there is morality and truth that's based on like, I didn't have to explain the penal code to him of why that was a problem. I didn't have to understand the economics of the store owner and taking property from him. He knew that what he had done was wrong. I think there's this really objective truth and morality that we, we can say, you know, it's subjective if we want, but that we just do that to fit our narrative. I still don't think that changes the fact that there's, I tell that story just to say he knew at five years old that what he had done was not okay. And I've, I've heard that um, a lot of those type of stories before. And Typically, the, the counter argument to that is people saying, oh, that's just uh, society. It's his societal norms being taught into him since birth. Um, however, the counter argument to that argument is why does... Uh, he had no interaction with society well, at that point. Why do the cannibals know that eating people is good for them? Just the fact that they think that it's good for them shows them that there is some sort of... Like, why do they know good and bad? Why, why yeah. is that concept into every culture, no matter where you are? There's good and there's bad, bottom line. But that very notion that people know that no matter what culture you're in, whether you're a murderer or a cannibal or, you know, the, the preacher down the street, everybody knows there's good and bad. And why do we have that? And that's kind of what you're talking about. It's built. It's it, it's in, in us. Yeah. Uh, go back to Cain and Abel. Knew he committed a sin. Instantly, right? That was an issue right away. He knew what he had done is bad. There was no society that he was in. There was no cultural reference, right? Because there was the first one. Now what do you know? Right? But it's hard whenever it isn't you, something that's yeah. been normalized and and talked about and built into, right? Like I think you know we have a it's instinctual in us. We have this thing that tells us there is a a right and a wrong, and I think people can do the wrong thing. And that's, that's, I mean, you know, I, I'm not here to say what's right and wrong necessarily, but 
um, they can do the wrong wrong thing, and and they kind of know that that's an issue, mm-hmm. but but they can they can analyze it or they can rationalize it to a point where where it becomes acceptable to them. But uh, and when you when you talk about the, your your thought process, that's kind of like the step one in in realize like thinking about morality on a deeper level. Is it subjective or is it objective? And if you can answer that, typically you can come to a good conclusion on the steps under that, like wherever you want to go past morality on that, that's, that's up to, you know, that's up to you. But for me, I can, I kind of came to a point where like, I want to know if there's actually a God bottom line. I right. questioned him. I doubted, I doubted that there was a higher power bottom line. Um, and I, and I, all my research, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a thinker on with logic and reason research. And I wanted to know these theories and how I can prove that if there is a God or if there isn't a God. And for me, it boiled down to subjective morality versus objective morality. And once I answered that, I kind of knew where I stood. Right. And that's kind of where society is, I think, coming to a a precipice on. (laughs) So it's it's very interesting. Oh, this popped up. Go away. My computer. Is it still recording? Yeah, there it is. Okay. I... I had uh, one recording where it crashed. So I've been looking at it. Every time I look yeah. at a computer, I'm like, okay, we're still good. <laughs> um, so we got on this tangent. Um, I'm trying not to keep you here forever, but um, we got on this tangent first asking where you think these theoretical ideas can further your your subfield of science. These, like you said, practically, you like to see the observational science to be able to move things further in your CNC program. Um, do you ever apply like crazy ideas that have no basis for science and then try and prove them to further your field. Like what's your biggest dream for your field? Yeah, that's maybe two separate questions, but okay. Uh, answer one and answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, um, one of the things that happened in my field is, uh, we used to, we used to a lot of manufacturing in the United States. I mean, you know, that's what we did. Um, we got to a point where we, we learned this term called offshoring, where everybody sent everything overseas mm-hmm. uh, to be manufactured. And the reason that happened was because we became stagnant. Um, we weren't developing new things. We weren't pushing any limits. We weren't willing to to uh, try difficult things. And that that's, has to do with engineering and everything, like using different types of materials and, and different types of cutters and things like that. So mm-hmm. without getting too specific... We really got stagnant to where we're at. So all that stuff went away. Well, in, in really 2007 was a big crash for our industry. And since then, we have really, I think, challenged ourselves as an industry and said, listen, we're going to um, bring this back and we're going to bring it back by pushing the envelope. So we're pushing the envelope on our machines uh, and our and, and there's, there's really cool, uh, it's only cool to me, but it's really cool relationship between uh, machinery and material and the cutting tool, the tool that you use, because they all have a limit, right? So if I'm cutting, you know, a piece of titanium with a certain size cutter, how fast can I make that go? How deep can I cut? How much how, how much can I take at one time? Uh, I can stall the machine, I can damage the material, or I can blow up the tool, right? So we've started to really test the limits uh, on, on physics of what we can do and things, mm-hmm. that, things that I would have told you 10 years ago we couldn't do. We're doing it all the time now. Really? Um, yeah. And we, we have machines now that are moving uh, at unbelievable speeds. I mean, do you ever think that the, the – I'm guessing you don't have AI in your field. 
Am I right? No. Do yeah, you? there's there's an influence. Okay. Yeah. Because um, a lot of is there a limit? Is that going to be a question? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I think there has to be, but I don't know. Because right now the social media uh, giant that we have right now is thinking on its own. Like right. the videos that you have that you see, the posts that you see, the friends that you see, that's not from somebody, oh, yeah, some yeah. engineer. That's an AI algorithm that is putting that in front of you. And now the engineers who created the AI said it's far surpassed anything they ever created. Like you need to go watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix. It talks all about this. I, I watched about half of it. Okay. Yeah. Finish it. Yeah. Very, very interesting. It's scary. Oh, it's terrifying. So bringing that to your current field. I don't have Alexi in my house because of that. Not because Alexa, of that show. Alexi? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it's called. See, I don't have Good one. old Sarah. I don't got Sarah in my house. <laughs> I don't want people listening to me. Alex, oh, they're already listening to us. I mean, it's on our phones. Yeah. Bottom line. Um, I mean, you talk you talk about anything and it's an ad's going to pop up in your phone. Yeah. I mean, that's that's it. Bottom line. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I field, think, AI. I, I, you know, I, I want to say there's a limit, but then again, I don't know. I don't know where that limit's at. Like there, it seems like, uh, you know, I'm dealing with physics and chemistry and, you know, I mean, we're talking about materials, uh, you know, made from certain, certain different chemicals like, uh, like, um, you know, we work a lot with alloy steels that they, they add nickel and beryllium and some other materials in there that gives them more tensile strength or, you know, so forth. And, and it seems like there has to be a, a point where you can't remove material that fast without, without damaging that substructure. Right. And the tooling that we cut with is made from a solid carbide. And that's a that's an interesting field because it used to be. So when we say we're using a carbide tool, it's actually like 80% cobalt and like 20% carbide because solid carbide just be brittle, right? It'd be like glass. So, um, Of course, yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so we you use a, a, a you know, substrate of cobalt. It's like 80% to 20% carbide. And we used to just like slurry mix it, right? You put it in a blender and. I mean, not we, but guys who make manufacturing, make, make cutting tools. And it was just like a slurry they'd mix up and they'd pour in a, a mold, right? I mean, that's very basic engineering. But <laughs> basically, that's how it works, right? So whatever came out, now they're actually using technology that actually places the particles of the carbide in strategic locations. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, think about that. Like they're placing that's atomically. A it's Well, they're making the cutter. They're making the cutter okay. that we use to machine material, right? So I, you know, God. you think there's got to be some sort of limit, but I don't, I don't know what that. I'm not sure where the limit is, but there's got to be something where mm. we can't go faster. Um, we can't go faster based on, you know, I don't know. I mean, it was all, things are already faster than humankind. It's we're we're living iRobot. We're in the beginning stages of iRobot. Blue I mean, pill, red pill. <laughs> no, I mean, it's not blue pill, red pill. Like you look at, I mean, machines all over the place are. Oh, dude, I, robotics past is, humans. It's bad. Ro- robotics is is um, taking over our industry for sure, yeah. and, and it's a good thing. Uh, I'm not opposed to that whatsoever, and I'm not even opposed to some of the, um, you know, ar- artificial intelligence type mentality that uh, you know. I mean, I do see some benefit for that, but it is pretty scary because it's there's no way to control it, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the scary part, but. Um, yeah, we're, we're using robotics. Um, you know, we're seeing it all in the field. We're, you know, there's, there's a lot of technology happening in that too. So, um, the whole goal for our industry is to get, you know, faster, more efficient, you know, more, and it isn't, you know, I, I get guys in my industry, they're like, oh, these robots, you know, all the old guys, right? These robots are going to take all of our jobs. And it's mm-hmm. not, it's a whole nother field. You don't we didn't you think have so? Before. Yeah, it's a whole nother field. I mean, I get that, but you can teach 
your artificial intelligent robot to do anything. So technically the AI concept can go into every field, taking jobs from every field, don't you think? Yeah, I have a hard time crossing over that line. I, at some point in time, somebody's got to tell something what to do. And I know AI is calculating on its own, but there's got to be, I mean, I think we can use AI to benefit us in being more efficient and more, you know, um, but is there going to be a time when AI is just doing everything and we're just what, you know, again, hooked to the Nothing. matrix? Somewhere? I mean, neural net. Yeah, neural net. Speaking of Elon. Yeah. I don't know. I do. I am concerned about it. I really seriously have had discussion with uh, my wife before about like, I think it, it's going to get out of control fast. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you, I don't know how you stop it. It seems like things like this typically swing on the pendulum. They, wh- whether it's a social idea or a, uh, AI, it swings on this pendulum of like craziness and then it takes red, red uh, restrictions to bring it back to a healthy level. But typically when, you, when those restrictions come back, it swings back to the opposite side. It takes another few years to come back to a healthy level. So it's this like swinging pendulum that happens all the time. So, yeah, it's going to get out of control. And but is my- that AI part, though? That's the problem is whose hands, is it, whose hands is it in? The AI? Right? Welcome to iRobot. Right. Yeah. It's, so, I mean, honestly. So how do you control, how do you put a regulation on it? How do you stop it? You, you know, I don't know. That's a, Well, that's what oh, what's-his-face was talking, trying to do. Dark, um, dark matter again. Dark, dark matter. <laughs> uh, the, the guy who's running, uh, Andrew Yang, that was his yeah, running yeah. platform, uh-huh. yeah. was stopping AI now. Because it's gonna, it's already taken out what sixty percent of retail. Yeah, just unplug it. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody just unplug it. Blue pill, red pill. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. It's gotta happen. Yeah, I don't know. It's. Um, I, I think it's gonna. I think it's. You know, it has a potential to benefit. I think there has been some benefits. I, I saw something not long ago on cancer research, and that this there's a facility that it's like a think tank for cancer. Um, and what it does is it takes patients that have have traditional treatments and haven't responded. So they send it to this facility and these doctors, you know, I don't know, 12 or 14 doctors on this board, uh, look into new research and new development and new, new therapies and new drugs. And they try to find out why the traditional one didn't work. Anyway, they've, this has been going on for like 20 years, right? So they, they just took all those cases <clears throat> and ran them back through uh, Watson. Uh, an AI unit to say, how would you have solved this issue? And they found out they were actually right in about 80% of the cases mm-hmm. that they actually did per- proceed correctly. Um, so, I, I mean, I think hmm. there's some benefits to it, right? But- no, yeah, big time. Like, did you ever see um, uh, that stupid movie, Agent Cody Banks? It was like forever ago, yeah. the nanobots. Yeah. That was like eating everything. Yeah. They have that now for medicine. It's, yeah. It was a research article I was looking at. I think it was on Frontier Journal. And they have nanobots that take medicine to the exact spot that you need it. And it's actually proven to work. And that's, that's, a, that's a big issue right now, or has been an issue with medicines. And um, how do you fix the issue whenever medicine isn't going to the issue? Right. Yes, that's why you have um, antibiotics taking out your whole system, because you got to fix one issue. Um, instead, antibiotics could go directly to it's the, the old radiation thing, right? Like you have cancer, you just shoot you full of yes. chemotherapy, and now they're placing focused yeah, radiation focused on radiation, the cancer. And they're also putting in, uh, you know, my father in law had, um, you know, I don't even know what they're called, the little pellets placed, yes, right, that deteriorate slowly over time. I mean, yeah, so now they have robots. Speaking of AI, you have robots going inside your system taking medicine to where it needs to be. Yeah, the good news is I'm going to make all the parts that put that robot together. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're pushing two hours. Um, wrap up. Um, 
president. So let me hold on a second. Oh, okay. If you're going to go into president, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you. So no, me, I'm not going, I'm not going into politics, president. Oh, I'm you, not. You scared me with president no, no, no. term. I see your posts. <laughs> I, I ain't going there, man. I was going back to you, who you are, but go. Okay. Well, go ahead. Cause I, maybe that's where I was headed to. No, finish. What you're so, doing. so, um, I, I do want to add this to the story, um, that, um, you know, really, it, we kind of touched on it. Like, I, I don't have a master's degree or bachelor's degree, anything crazy. And, and, and I got in this education field, and it's really been uh, rewarding, and just the people that I've, that I've been with. But it also given me some crazy good opportunities, too, right? So uh, about three years ago, I started this project where I actually, actually wrote a book. So I actually have a book now. and I'm that's, actually that's what I was going into. Yeah, I perfect. actually have another book that I'm working on currently. So talk, talk about your first book. <laughs> so... So manufacturing is, uh, I'll tell you kind of how it started. So manufacturing um, has come a long way. So we're talking 1985, the first real CNC machines were made available in the United States where they were affordable to buy and people could use them. And of course, we've grown a lot since then. In 35 years, seems like a long time, but really it's, it's not a long time. I mean, it's, that technology has just exploded. Um, so um, when I started this program, one of the things I did was curriculum and so we got a textbook and, and there's a reason we went with this textbook. It has to do with it was certified to the start organization. So we started using the textbook, but then we decided to, to uh, change from that, to actually change publishers and go with some other books. So I started, I started doing some book reviews and, and actually like checking, like um, what I want to call it, uh, peer reviewing uh, mm. other books from other authors uh, and giving like, them like feedback. Like the beta version? Yeah, like, and some of them were some of them were second revisions and things like okay. that. Like you know, what can we you know do to do this? And and we we do it really with a with with a straight face. I mean, we really want to help other people in our industry. You know, improve things and make it better. So so I started kind of doing that, and then um, in that same process, the the publisher said, "Hey, uh, we want to send you some books because we know you're going to change your textbook. So here's a here's you know ten books for you to read through and see which one." works for you. So I read to these books and I'm like, and Sandy, Sandy's my publisher. She's, she's a great lady, but you know, I just call her up and say, your books suck. I mean, those things are terrible. And she's like, what's the matter with them? I'm like, they're all old technology that you've added like a section in for new technology. So it's like way outdated. So yeah, like for instance, the very first book we had, um, <clears throat> it's all on old technology, stuff like 1970 and oh, previous. God. And then there was 14 pages on CNC manufacturing. 14 pages. Oh, my Lord. Right? So that was the whole, like, you know, we'd use Golly. it for a week. And then, you know, the textbook could sit, you know, you could throw it away after that. We would use our own material. So all of these books were kind of the old technology and just out of date. and stuff. That's, not, just, that's not old. That's like gone. I mean, was it, you said 1970s? Yeah, yeah. Even, even 80s and 90s. I mean, the 90s is gone. I mean, that stuff just yeah. doesn't, the way. That's my point. So, yeah. in, in, and there's a big, uh, another sidebar, but there's a there's a big argument in education right now in, in my field where I go to these big conferences with three, 400 people and they say, how many people think you should do manual machining? And still half of them raise their hand. It's kind of like, uh, the, the analogy I always give is like, uh, if you're going to do an auto school, would you teach carburetors? Well, guess what? They haven't put a carburetor mm. on a car in like 20 something years. Like they don't put them on there anymore. Why would you even be bothering teaching that? Like, you know, it just doesn't make yeah. sense. So, so we have the same argument even amongst ourselves as educators. So during this process, she kept telling me, well, if you don't like the books, why don't you write a book? And I'm like, I, 
you know, I can barely write my name. I can't write a book, you know, like there's just no way I can write a book. And so, you know, through multiple people encouraging me, somebody actually at our corporate level who got involved, who said, man, you should really do this. And then mm -hmm. really the bottom line was my wife said, what are you, you know, crazy? Someone wants you to write a book. Like, I don't even know how to, yeah, how do you even start that process, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's difficult. So I really, what I did was just took <clears throat> our program, the way we run it, and I just wrote a book that matches our program. Mm. Um, it's it's a long process, two and a half years. Mm. Uh, to how big is the book? Because uh, this, this isn't just like a novel. This is a, a full-on textbook for education. Oh, it's a textbook. Yeah, yeah, it's a full-on <laughs> textbook. I don't. Yeah, I don't know how big it is. I know. I know. Uh, Man, at one time I counted the words. It was 95,000 words or something like that. Nice. Which that just blew my head away that I had wrote 95,000 words. Um, I don't know. It's, you know, 300 pages, 340 pages, something like that. Um, and then I wrote a subsequent uh, lab book that went worth, with it, which I thought was a really important piece to have, have a lab book to work out mm. of too. Um, not just the information, yeah. but some review of the information, right? Golly. So I, I did that. So this is, this is the first actual textbook for this program total, like nationwide? So this is our own, you know, I mean, it's not our own. It's not Lincoln's. I, I wrote it, not, you know, on my own time, but but Lincoln's using it uh, nationally. Uh, but like as far as others, are there other CNC programs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah there's other CNC programs are they in the country. Some, uh, it's fairly new. So okay. unfortunately, we released a book in January and then we had a pandemic happen. Mm. So a lot of these schools haven't even been in session. So... Um, that was you, your second book. No, this is the the first book. Oh, so oh, so January is when you first released it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. After I mean, it, it is a process. Two years. Yeah, Golly. it's it's a process, man. It's the editing and the peer reviewing yeah. and the um, just even the layout and the illustrate. The illustrations are what killed me. The illustrations are really tough. I bet they had you draw a little cube, huh? Yeah, <laughs> they had me draw cubes with a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> I do 800 of them and they still don't. No, man. I went in my software and I created 3D models of yeah. everything and everything, you know, and did all stuff. So it was a real process. Um, I can't imagine because I'm, I'm, I wanted to write a book just because I've got a lot of random stories in my head. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I started writing a book. I'm like 30,000 words in and it's taken me almost a year to get that. And that's, that's not like facts. It's just stories. It's a novel that. Has yeah. no bearing on reality. <laughs> so I have like 30 something years in my field, 32 years in yeah. my field. And then you start going through and writing a book and you're like, man, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. Gosh. There's a lot of stuff I got to do research on. And there's a lot of stuff where I would say or do when I started looking into it, I'm like, that's really I'm like, not that my way doesn't work, but it's really not the correct way to do it. So I had to, you know, fix hmm. a lot of that. And that's Interesting. all, that's all the peer reviewing process, right? Do you think that writing the book actually helped you become a better teacher? I think it, yeah, I think, I think, um, it made me more correct, right? Because mm -hmm. one thing you never want to do as a teacher is stand up and tell them something that isn't right, right? <laughs> so, and I mean, you can do it. Like my students wouldn't know the difference. I could mm -hmm. tell them, you know, you got to turn the machine upside down and backwards and make it work. They wouldn't know the difference. Mm -hmm. They try to do it. So, but you definitely want to be correct and you want to sound, you want to be technical uh, with your terms. And, mm -hmm. I, and I'm, you know me, I'm not an academia in, in my book. That was one of the things I struggled with my editor in the beginning was um, they wanted it to sound very academia. And so I'm like, that's not me. That's mm. not how my book is going to be. That's not how my students are. That's super frustrating for me as yeah. a student. So my response to my editor is, you have people with a whole lot of degrees behind their name writing books to see how smart they sound. Mm -hmm. And that irritates me. Nobody can read that or understand that. Don't. <sighs> and I'll, I'll tell you another thing that frustrated me somewhat was um, 
and this is going to be really off bizarre, but no reference to history anywhere. So I wrote something about George Washington actually started out doing some uh, kind of in a machine shop, not really a machine shop, more like a, a fabrication shop um, where he was making ammunition. And, oh, you can't have that in the book. Really? And it, it, there was a lot of stuff about history. I, I, I had a whole section, the first chapter of my book, which that's I really scary. I really fought with about the history of our <clears> industry because <throat> that's really important to me, like where we started and how we've come to the point where we're at. That was supposed to be the whole first chapter, and the, the publisher really said no. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, we're going to do that. Like, we're going to do it, or. That's we're a not huge do deal. It. I thought it was a huge deal, too. Um, I, I had a whole section on the Industrial Revolution that got minimized down to about a paragraph and a half. Because when you think about it, I mean, if, if one publisher is doing that, there's probably all publishers are most likely doing things like this, meaning there's no documented proof 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 150 years from now, where we're going to have books that have no history in it. Yeah. So my, my point to them was, how do you talk about the whole point of the book kind of was, you know, I mean, it's a textbook, but the whole point was, how do we get to the point we are today with CNC manufacturing? And how do you not talk about, and here's what happened in my industry, right? It's a, wow. another, another sidebar is uh, the first CNC lathe was built in 1775 by a guy named Wilkinson. Wilkinson built it to make cannons, to, can, to bore out cannon bodies. That's the very first one that we know about, right? Well, really, some things got better and we got electricity and those sort of things. But really, up until 1985, things didn't change all that much. Hmm. Um, and then in 1985, we had this whole, you know, boom. They, they call it the fourth industrial revolution. Now they've had this whole mm -hmm. industrial revolution that is that has changed. So I really wanted, to, hey, let's talk about how we got from here to there and how all these things are are related and similar. Um, I had a real hard time getting that. That's crazy, though. I mean, when you like I said, when you don't have a documented uh, story of history, you don't you can make history for you. I wonder if that's how like a lot of people think there's no Holocaust. You know. I, I think so, and I think I think there's this kind of mentality again that it's a it's a textbook and not a not a history of machining book if you want to do that. But I'm like, how do I write a, a legitimate textbook that doesn't talk about you know at least where we came? I talk about it in my class. That's where it came from. I mean, I love talking about the history of machining and how we got here, right? Wow. Um, but it really gets kind of downplayed. That's pretty so, screwed up. I'm still shocked at that. So yeah, I was too. Um, and I got some of my. I mean. It, it came came to a point that some things I'm like, I put my foot down and said, no, nah, we're doing this. Mm. So this is important to me. And so you got it in there? Yeah. So okay. That's good. Maybe not to the, there's compromise, right? Yeah. Definition compromise. Nobody gets what they want. So mm. I didn't get everything I wanted, but I got some of what I wanted. Um, and so um, I did that and I, I released it in January. And then um, while I was writing the book, I realized something that it's a very, it's a basic, it's an intro level book made for like my students, but but there was so much information that I wanted to add and put on and I just didn't have a place to do it. Like I really wanted to get into some of these theories of machining and how we do it and why we do it and, and like crazy uh, tips and, you know, stuff that you wouldn't just know. Uh, all the stuff that I've learned, like mm. how do I get that all in a book too? So as I'm writing the book, I'm realizing, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm up at midnight on a Saturday night, you know, writing this, thinking to myself, there's got to be, there's another book here. Like we've got to mm. do another book. Uh, so when I get done, I, I took a, a pretty short break, really. And um, and so I started another one. So I'm in the process of another right now. Is that like intermediate level? Yeah, I think actually, actually, I think it has the ability to be used at a, at a university level. Mm. I mean, in 
the difference in what I did in the beginning, the first book was it kind of covered a whole lot of it's co- covered like 10 topics over, you know, 15 chapter book. Um, <laughs> Golly. So, right. So, so there's no depth to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, in a, and what I want to teach and what I teach my students is all the foundational stuff. You know, if you understand yeah. the theory of how it works, we don't have to get into all the, you know, other examples or yeah. or even exceptions to that, right? Let's let's learn the 90% and don't worry about the other stuff. So this one's really could be used at a, definitely a junior college level. But it, at that level, they, they teach a class, right? Like this is the CNC mill programming class. Okay. So that book would fit into that. So okay. I've divided hmm. it in, in three sections basically. And so that one could actually be used definitely a secondary level. You know, I mean. Are you going to uh, do a third book? I'm done. <laughs> I don't have nothing left to say. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know. I don't know what I could go from here. So, no, it's it's. I mean, it's thousands of hours of work. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, it's thousands of hours. I'm like, I work every night till you know eleven o'clock at night on that, and weekends. And my 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 wife is my wife has supported me. In fact, it was she was the one that really wanted me to do it, and, and she's like, she should be. Hey, you need to go work on your books. On you know, but it's like every weekend. I mean, all your free time. It's, it's a lot of my free time. I, I I'm very balanced. Mm. You know, I had I had my grandson this weekend to basically put the thing away on Saturday and spend all day with him and stuff. So so there definitely is a balance, and and we've done vacations. My wife mm-hmm. and I just went away for our anniversary um, for a few days. So yeah, how so was that? Was it a lot of fun? That was pretty cool. Yeah, it was fun. I never got to go out there. It's on the list. Yeah, so we went to Vegas, um, uh, and we rented a car. Uh, and a couple of reasons we went to Vegas. One is one is right now it's just super cheap, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Vegas is always cheap, but it was super cheap. Um, and we decided to, to get a rental car with it, and then we went to the Grand Canyon. Gina's never seen the Grand Canyon. Either have I. So we lived in California all those years. She yeah. never saw the Grand Canyon. Yeah, but no. so, <laughs> so I'm like, let's go to the Grand Canyon. You'd love this. We went on the um, Skywalk. Ooh. So you walk on this glass platform that's 4,000 feet in the air. <laughs> so that was really cool. There's so, a there's a whole airspace uh, above Grand Canyon that you have to like get clearance for and stuff. It's pretty interesting. Because oh, I was going to fly out there a while back. With so my maybe instructor. you can understand this. There's a there's a physiological effect that happens that really shocked me. So we're waiting to go on the skywalk, right? We see all these people go out there and they're holding the rail and they're, they act like they're you know I mean they're gripping thing for dear life like they're going to die. And I was thinking to myself again, very linear, right? Like there's a glass shelf there. Thousands of people have walked on it. Not going to fall. It's not going to break. You know, there's really no danger here. So, so don't let it freak you out, right? So I walk out on this thing and there's, you know, clear glass in the center. And I, and I walk out and I look down. I instantly had the feeling that my stomach felt mm. like, like you went over the top of a roller coaster. And I, was, and I thought that was so bizarre because I'm like, I'm not falling, but my brain thinks I'm falling, I think. Like I always thought when I went over the top of a roller coaster yeah. that that was actually my, you know, my stomach actually is getting pulled up, you know, through inertia or something. But you got that same exact feeling when you look down. It was bizarre. But what you don't have, so you've jumped out of a plane before, right? No. Really? It's, no. I thought you did. It's uh, been on my list. Okay. Well, when you jump out of a plane and go skydiving, you don't get that feeling. Yeah. And that was the exact opposite of what I thought. So I went, there was a, a, a theme park, an extreme theme park in Dallas. Uh, I forgot. I think it's called Zero Gravity. Um, and right before I got married, uh, me and, and a lot of the guys went out. This is Zach went with it. And uh, we went in a net, like, uh, I don't know what you call it, a carriage. It's just a little seat. And you're looking at the, up at the guy. And um, up beneath you is, I think it's 100 feet of just, just, it's a net at the very bottom. 
and you're, you're sitting in the little thing and he goes, all right, you ready? One, two, and he pulls it and you, you free fall, and you just free fall, free fall for a hundred feet yeah. backwards. And I felt like I was in the air for five minutes and that was the most, um, like free, like that, that, that stomach feeling you're talking about. Yeah. That was by far the most I've ever felt with any roller coaster with Scott. It's, and I felt like I was in the air for a long time. If skydiving felt a lot shorter than this, and I was only in the air for three seconds. Wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah. And I thought it was, it's, that's why I bring it up. Yeah. Because it's like, Ooh. I wasn't, I really wasn't scared. It is, it's kind of freaky to be four, you know, 4,000 feet, three quarters mm-hmm. of a mile. That's a long way in the air. Um, but just to look down and then you get that feeling in your stomach, like your stomach's dropping out. I'm like, what is that from? I wonder if it's because, you know, have you ever been, um, like walking down steps and you think there's one more step and it's just not a step. It's actually ground. Yeah. And you like completely trip or yeah. vice versa. You think there's, you're climbing up steps and you're, you're just talking to somebody and you're actually at the top and you think there's one more step, but you just kind of like, and you, it throws yeah. you off balance. Right. I just did that the other, <laughs> the other day I was coming down and I thought there was a curb. It's like the yes. park that was right there. And I thought it was a curb and I did that like the big horse leg stop. You know? <laughs> and your, your whole balance is off. Yeah. But it's, I wonder if it's kind of the same, it's connected to what you felt on the bridge. Your, your mind is so used to seeing your feet fall on the ground that it, it prepares for it. So even though you know there's there's ground there, your mind says it's there's not ground. It's perception. So it's a perception, just like um, it's kind of like a limbic response, the fear, you know, fight, fight or flight. For what though? Fight, fright or flight. That's what it is. Um, well, you know, your brain, your your brain kind of takes over, right? In yes. that moment. So I, I just I got the impression that like I looked down and my brain's like telling my body, hey, there's you know. There's nothing below you and that's mm. bad and Ooh. I don't know. So there's, um, you know, when the moon comes like up from the horizon. Like a pizza pie. What is that song? Like a big pizza pie. So when the moon, when you, when the moon is so big and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how huge that moon is. The moon doesn't change size. We're not getting closer. It's just because it's close to the horizon that our, our mind actually. Right shows that it's way bigger than it actually is. But as soon as it gets up in the sky, there's nothing to compare it to. And so it looks like a normal. The only reason why we see it so big is because our mind tr- is tricked. Yeah, that's more of an optical illusion. Though, yes. Right? I mean, but I'm wondering yeah. if that's the same thing with what you're feeling. Uh, yeah. With that, with the glass and us stepping. And <laughs> anyway, besides Man. that, Vegas was great. Now I got to do a podcast on this. I'm going to like find some research study on it. All right, Rick. So, um, Director of Education, you've been there how long now? Seven and a half. Seven years. and a half years. Yeah. Um, to anybody who would be interested in doing CNC, what would you say to them? Like, if you want to get people to come to your school and you're like, "Hey, like this is an amazing thing," like, like for me, coming from a guy who's been your student before, not in CNC, but just from being your student in other areas, like I'd, I would love to have you as a teacher and director of the program. That'd be amazing. Yeah. So there's um, there's a it's it's a really cool field. It's a it's a cool field for a lot of reasons. One one is just it's so creative because mm-hmm. every time you see something that has to be machined, what you get is a, a picture, if you will, or the print of a final part. But how you get to there is up to you. So it really breeds creativity. It also um, it's so technology driven, right? Like computer programming, and and people even get freaked out by that a little bit. Like oh, I got to learn all this, you know, C plus plus. You don't do any of that. It's very simplified. It's very easy. So the, the technology is there, the stability long term, 
Is there? It seems uh, like it's always changing too. It's not one of those fields that you just get in a rut with. You know, it's not the same thing every day. Like it seems like it's no, always it's, mutating. It's, it's always mutating, and yeah. and it's even mutating into other fields where it hasn't been before. Like so now we, you know, normally talk about Miller lathes, but now they're they're CNC lasers, CNC routers, uh, CNC punch presses, CNC mm. um, uh, plasma cutters. So you can get to any field that you want to, pretty much. Oh yeah, there's really no limit. Uh, I, I ask guys this a lot when they, if they're touring our camps, I say, what's your hobby? Oh, you know, gaming. Oh, yeah. You know that little hand controller that you use? Those are all made in CNC generated plastic injection molds. And, hmm. you know, I mean, you can really go into any anything that you have. I've, I have a guy who's um, into RC cars. You know, it's, you know all those parts that you buy? Those are all CNC machine parts. Those are all coming off a machine. You still think yeah. of it that way. How long was the program? It's nine months, 36 uh, weeks. Um, and what's a typical salary when you're, when you just come out? I refuse to answer that question on the ground that it might incriminate myself. That's fair. Because we are, because we are a for-profit school, it's, um, so for-profit has a, has a positive and negative connotation. There were were a lot of really bad for-profit schools that got into it. And Hmm. one of the reasons they got into a lot of trouble was because they would say, Hey, come here and you can go make. $800,000 $800,000 a year. So I never want to tell people, I tell you to look it up. Okay. Look it up. And but really, you can make a decent living off of it. I have raised a wife and five kids. Okay. And really, my wife has never had to work until I went into education. <laughs> she went back to work. But uh, <laughs> you you can definitely make an educa- um, a, a living uh, and a good living. And the other thing is you can do it anywhere in the country. There's nowhere in the country you can go where there is a mm. machine. I mean, there is nowhere. I've lived in six different states. Because it's manufacturing. Yeah, it's that's, manufacturing. Like I said, back, backbone of the yeah. economy. And, and the manufacturing might change. If you go up towards Detroit, it might mm-hmm. be automotive. If you go to California, it's going to be the <clears> tech industry. You know, if you go on the, the East Coast and Northeast, where a lot of manufacturing is, it's it's normally big aircraft stuff. So uh, hmm. Dallas-Fort Worth is really the hub of manufacturing right now. I mean, you want to you wanna have a job that pays, you know, well and takes care of you. Um, Bell Helicopters, National Headquarters, yeah. there's seven facilities. Their facility in Grand Prairie is hiring 270 people this year oh to, my to do exactly what we're learning. And I know that because they're coming to me saying, give me everybody you got. Mm. Uh, the, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter is made in Fort Worth. Oh, that's so awesome. Uh, right up the street from from us. So that's where a lot of shops are doing a lot of work on on aircraft parts. Uh, Sikorsky Helicopters here. There's um, Is this D- specifically yeah. with DFW though? Yeah. Like that, so you're, saying, DF- you're yeah. saying DFW is like the hub for the nation. For yeah, this, for this field, really. That's why I came here. That's one of the big reasons that I came here. I thought you just followed us. Yeah, stalker, back to stalker, <laughs> two point <laughs> No, um, you know, wow. whole nother side story. But but we were in Missouri, uh, and your family moved out here, which we were friends with, and we mm. actually came out here and visited you guys a few times. And they're really manufacturing is really bad in Missouri, especially in Springfield side. Hmm. There's just not a lot of manufacturing going on. Um, so. We knew we were going to move, so I started doing a little bit of research, and I'm like, oh, yeah, like the hub of all manufacturing. Is in DFW. Is in DFW. I did not know that. So I threw my wow. resume on Indeed about four days before we moved, and I had six interviews the first week I was here. Like, like, I had my choice of what I wanted to do. Is it still like that? Yeah. And I'm sure it's, maybe it's even grown because the economy has boomed recently. Yeah, the economy's boomed. Manufacturing is higher than it Aside was 10 years ago. COVID, but yeah. But, but dude, manufacturing is, it's been affected for sure. But you can't stop manufacturing. I know. You can't. You yeah. can't stop making, you know, you talk about all those pieces of parts for respirators and all that kind of, all that stuff has to be manufactured. It's, mm. 
it's happening. They're, you know, they're, that's critical business. Hmm. I, I kind of wish like a big part of me is, is happy. I became an EMT, but it, there's just no money in it. And it's, it's right. You can't yeah. live off of it. Right. Bottom line. I, I love what I did, but you can't live off of it. So a big part of me kind of wish I did something like that where there's a lot more opportunity to, to move up and, and, and travel. So I, looking back, I, I would might actually do that. That's pretty cool. Nine months. Yeah. It's, it's a good field and yeah. it's, um, and you really can write your own ticket and you could do your own thing. You can start your own business. I mean, all you need is a little niche part or something mm-hmm. that somebody needs and you can make them. Did um, when business started coming um, back to America from China that we outsourced, did that help with a lot of what you're talking about? Yeah, it helped. It helped a lot, but it, but it came back, it came back with a fury on the, on the point that it was, we knew we couldn't do things the same way. Like we had to be better. So we have to start challenging hmm. ourselves and the way we did everything. So we're, we really are doing that now. We're really, you know, I, I say machining is a violent sport. So we're, we're really being aggressive on how we machine things and how we do things. And now that you have all these really cool multi-axis machines that can do really intricate, crazy stuff. So we're really challenging ourselves. And we didn't, we didn't have to, you know, everyone always says, well, it's a labor market, right? We send it overseas because they'll work for a dollar a week or whatever mm-hmm. the crazy number is. But really, we haven't. We can continue to pay our employees uh, a livable wage for sure, a good livable wage. We just have to challenge um, how we manufacture everything. We got to do it mm-hmm. better. We got to do it faster. Uh, we got to be more efficient. That's why I say robots is not a bad thing for us. It's a good <laughs> thing for us. Yeah. Right? Big, no, big time. Yeah. Is, is your program growing? Yeah, program is, you know, it has its swings uh-huh. and it depends on somewhat on cyclical, you know, time of the year and things like that. So we have about 60 people in that program right now. You started with 17? Yeah. yeah. So we've been above that and below you yeah. know, the 60 line um, a few times, but we're seeing more. The problem we have really is is explaining to 18, 20, 22 year old what is CNC manufacturing. I didn't, I didn't know about it, yeah. honestly. I I had at that age, I had no idea what it this was. is. What happens? You come into come call me at Lincoln College at one eight hundred now. You come by and do a tour, and I'll show you the machine and equipment and the software and how. Mm-hmm. And and you'll your your eyes will just light up. People that come in and look and see what we do, and and they they can relate it to a picture in their brain. It 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 blows them away. Hmm. So. Do you guys advertise a lot with that? Because it, I I had no idea about this much about it at all. Yeah. And we, then that age group, I don't know anybody in my age group who knows that. We, um, we have a lot of reps who go in high schools, try to demo more. We've done quite a bit of videos. I have like four YouTube pages. Um, we, we try to get some of this stuff out. Um, it's still, you know, if I say car mechanic, you automatically get a picture in your brain, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever that picture is. Um, if I say CNC machinist, you don't have a picture. Mm-mm. So we're, we're trying to rebrand right now. We're going to add, add some more robotics. We're going to probably change the name. Something includes robotics. And, and that'll Smart. create a picture. Because when I say Ooh, robot, robots, yeah. right. I mean, Even my you, son knows that. You say robot. You know, somebody <laughs> else thinks of, you know, some auto uh, diesel, you know, uh, not diesel, but in Detroit, like welding or know, the, cars uh, together. Robot or, wars. Yeah. Transformers. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone has some sort of picture. So. We're going to rebrand a little. That's really smart. Is yeah. that your, in the industry as a whole or just your college? Uh, just my college. I mean. Smart. I mean, my college, you know, we, we, and what's crazy is we look at all the metric numbers, right? We look at all the, uh, our graduation rate, our placement rate, our, our, all of those stuff, uh, satisfaction service stuff. We're, we're like top 
of every single program. Mm. Uh, How many CNC programs are in the nation? Do you know on average? Probably uh, not a lot because I don't know jack about it. There's there's quite a few. It's actually okay. really growing. So when I started this well, program in 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 Grand Prairie, there was no other school within about fifty miles. There was a really good program up in um, Denton, a high school program, and there was one in uh, Waco, TSTC, which is a good program. Um, but when right after I started, we started seeing them pop up everywhere. So everyone mm. saw this resurgent in manufacturing. It's not because of us. It's just the manufacturing. The part, time frame. The time frame, yeah. and they all started opening up. So there's there's quite a few. Some are good. Some are not good. Yeah. Um, I always tell students this: look look for the CNC manufacturing part. If you go to a program and they're going to spend a year or six months teaching you all this manual machinery stuff, run because mm. there is no job for that. There's mm. no market for that whatsoever. So. You need to learn computer-controlled technology. So. Share this, man. Share this podcast on on whoever you want it because this was super enlightening for me. And if anybody in my age group or just in general heard what how you talk about this this field, that's a game changer. That can be a life changer for some people. That's massive. Yeah, it's it's a career. Yeah, I mean, and people get caught up in their jobs and they lose sight of what a career is. This is a career. Like I I could literally pick up right now, and move to any state. I wanted to, and I'd have a job, you know, mm. within, you know, a week probably at the most because there's manufacturing everywhere. And I can get into any kind of field I want, you know, whatever I'm excited about or, you know, I can find parts that have to be machined out of that. So God, it really so cool. is diverse. And now we're doing all this really cool high-end software, man, mm. with 3D graphics. And we're actually building solid models that actually have mass and weight, you know, in the mm. model and stuff. So we're doing some really cool stuff. Um, it, it's pretty exciting. Well, Rick, thank you so much for coming on, man. We're at like uh, two hours and 15 minutes, but this is super awesome. We talked about so much. Um, I hope to have you on again because this was a lot of fun. So, yeah, I'm completely out of things to talk about. So. Oh, I actually have a lot more. Honestly, <laughs> I, dude, I could talk about a lot more and I could probably guide the conversation to some topics that you would have a mind explosion with, but we're it's already 915. So we, <laughs> I, I appreciate it, man. It's been a lot of fun. It has. It really was. All right, man. I'll talk nice. to you later.